Right, welcome to the Evan Roberts Podcast, the Decade in Review. Today, the Decade in Review of both the New York Yankees and the New York Mets. I am joined by a man who you hear on this radio station a lot, WFAN, Chris McMonagle. Chris, are you ready to reminisce over the last 10 years? Let's do it. I'm, I'm so psyched. Well, you're the Yankee fan, so you should be psyched. because no, I am. At least this decade, I understand there's no championships, there's right. no World Series appearances. Right. But as everybody will notice, as you reminisce, there's a lot of playoffs. There's a mm-hmm. lot of winning seasons. There's right. a lot of success. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the early part of 2010. It's January, February of 2010, and you guys are coming off a championship. Mm-hmm. You won the World Series in 2009. The big offseason story was not re-signing Hideki Matsui, who had... That incredible World Series, won the World Series MVP. You guys are coming off a championship. But what I remember back then was as excited as this town was about the Yankees, it wasn't the same feeling that you guys had over the Dynasty era team. You know, you had signed Teixeira, you had signed CeCe, you had signed AJ Burnett. So going into 2010... I mean, you tell me, were you feeling like there was a di- another dynasty coming? What was that sense going into 2010? I, it's it's funny because I remember the 2009 World Series. And uh, at one point, Usler, you know, and, and back then this was still working nights for summers and me and Usler having the, you know, met Yankee battles every night, making fun of each other, getting on each other. And I remember when he finally just resigned himself to the fact they were going to win in 09, I kept saying to him, hey, these championships come in bunches. They come in bunches, Bob. Get ready for it. And honestly, I did feel that way. I thought, you know, it was just to be, you know, to share it. Although in 09, and I know we're not talking about 09, got off to a slow start, had the solid year. Uh, A-Rod has his, you know, resurgence in the postseason. And I honestly thought that they were good enough where this was going to be a team that I thought they'd at least rattle off one more with this group. I really did. With uh, with CC in his prime as an ace. And the money they spent and the way the team looked in 09 and the way they really won 103 games, walked through the postseason. And I, I just I just honestly, I remember telling Bob they come in bunches. And I, I did feel that way. I did. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. In, in 2009, when they made all the moves that they made, mm-hmm. I never had that feeling that I had in the late 90s, early 2000s that the Yankees were destined to win a championship. Right. I knew they were very good. I mean, obviously, they won 103 games. We right. all know what happened. Mm-hmm. But I never felt throughout that run that they were going to be this championship team. In 2010, there was a different feeling because I kind of thought back to what happened in the late 90s, and I saw the talent that you had. You had a in-his-prime Robinson Cano. Right. You had an A-Rod that was still good. He wasn't the dominant guy that he was in 2007, but he was still good. Right. And I I was starting to fear, oh, my God. I mean, am I going to witness this again? Letting Matsui go, though, was sort of surprising because Hideki Matsui had become almost one of the faces of that mid-2000 Yankee team. I know you still had Jeter and you still had Mariano, but especially with what he did in that postseason, you thought of him as a clutch player, and that was a surprise, and it felt like a mistake letting Mm -hmm. this guy go. Yeah, I just remember at the time there was a, you know, he he was injured a lot. There was a lot of talk about, you know, his knees and, you know, I, I, I was never I, I do believe in the better a year too early than a year too late. Uh, I I definitely wanted him back and obviously coming off the World Series. But I do remember the feeling like, OK, look, he's been great. He's aging. I have no problem with trying to get younger in some spots and see what they, they ended up bringing in Nick Swisher. I mean, not, not Nick Swisher. Um, Curtis Granderson. Curtis Granderson. And obviously also um, Nick Johnson. Yep. 
Uh, but yeah, I mean, I didn't, it's tough because they did come off the world series. He was the MVP of the world series. And you're right. There was nobody better in a clutch at bat than Hideki Matsui, but I don't remember feeling that they're really blowing this one. I, 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 I was okay with Matsui moving on. I thought that, you know, what, what kind of contract are you going to sign him to? I, I was okay with it. And it's funny, looking back on it, his year in Anaheim in 2010 was basically the same as what he did with the Yankees in 09. So right. at the time, you could say, oh, man, we, we could have gotten the same production. After that, he fell off the rooftop. Yeah, absolutely. And he started to bounce around the league. In late 09, right before 2010, the calendar turned, they made that three-way trade for Curtis Granderson, yes. which at the time, I don't think any of us thought that Max Scherzer was going to be a Hall of Fame pitcher because yeah. he was in that trade, and Curtis obviously comes to the Yankees in that deal. Mm -hmm. And 2010, here's the funny thing about 2010, and this is my, I guess, the case I would use for the second wild card spot. The Yankees in 2010 did not win the American League East. And what I vaguely remember in doing sports talk radio throughout the season is how over the final month of the year, most Yankee fans, myself included, just as a talk show host, thought that they were better off not winning the division because it was going to potentially set up a matchup with the Minnesota Twins in the first round. And that's exactly what happened. So in right. 2010, the Yankees win 95 games. Mm -hmm. They do not win the division. The Tampa Bay Rays win the American League East. Right. Tampa Bay gets to play Texas mm -hmm. and the Yankees play Minnesota, even though that was one of those rare years where the Yankees had to go to Minnesota. The Twins actually had home field advantage right. like that freaking mattered. Because they swept them. And yep. so this because this was before the double wild card era, before you had to play a wild card game, yep. this was one of those years where I bet if you ask most Yankee fans, hey, did you win the division in 2010? Most people don't remember because right. it doesn't freaking matter. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it benefited them that they didn't win the division because they got the better matchup by playing Minnesota. Right. And the, you know, the, the decade started where it's ended. And it's just, you know, we they've owned the, they've owned the Minnesota Twins. And I do remember that. And I do, I don't remember, I'm not one of these guys, I always want to win the division. It's a goal right. you set out to at the beginning of the year. You know, I don't want to see the Tampa Bay Rays win a division. I don't, I don't want to see anyone beat the Yankees in a division. I, they, if the Rangers are the best team, you're going to have to play them at some point anyway. So I, I, and, you know, short series, you know, seven game series, I understand there's a difference. And, and absolutely, you want to face the, anyone in the postseason, it's the Twins. But I, I never get that feeling where I'm pleased with the wild card. I, I, then the New York Yankees go win a division. But yeah. I felt completely confident, as I do every time I play the Twins. I never for a second thought the Yankees would lose to the Twins, even though the twin, Twins won 94 games that year, and they were going to have to go to Minnesota to start that series. You know, it's the Yankees and the Twins. It's, you knew how it was going to go. You knew it. You and knew and it. now let's go back. In July of that year, mm -hmm. not only was LeBron James taking his talents to Miami. Jeez, that's so that was the same summer, but wow. on that day, all right, let me take you back to that day mm -hmm. when LeBron was going to Miami. Cliff Lee was apparently traded to right. the New York Yankees. Right. That was done. That was happening. Cliff mm -hmm. Lee is a New York Yankee, and mm -hmm. I remember Yankee fans celebrating this sure. deal. And I, I don't even remember who was going back in that deal. And I think it was Seattle at the time who had Cliff Lee. It was, Lee. yeah. I don't remember who was going back. I'm sure it was a, a decent return of young players. And then it fell apart, and he ended up in Texas. Right. And it was Montero who ended up going there anyway. 
Exactly right. It was, Montero, I remember being the key piece of the deal. There you go, which would yeah. have been fine. I think he ended up getting Michael Pineda back. Right. And so Cliff Lee ends up in Texas. Doesn't, you know, do anything crazy during the regular season, but obviously we know what happened during the postseason. Yeah, Yankee killer. Yeah, and, you know, much like some of the more recent trades of this decade, whether it was Verlander or Garrett Cole, this is one of those trades where if the Yankees make that deal, mm-hmm. if they acquire Cliff Lee instead of Texas, I think there's a very good chance that at minimum the Yankees are in the World Series. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. I remember, and still when you go back in your mind, it's one of those deals and one of those changes. It's very much like the Verlander. It very is much like that, where you're like, I don't remember the other pieces. At the time, Montero was very highly thought of. Uh, I remember he came to Yankee Stadium and hit a couple of home runs the opposite field, and everybody just thought, oh, my God, he's an absolute beast. I remember uh, your producer, Ernie Acosta, was all over him. Uh, but yeah, to not get Cliff Lee, who was at the time, you know, like you said, he went to Texas and, and didn't do much in the regular season. But at, at that point, he'd already started to develop a, a, a history of being a big game pitcher. And it's when you're the New York Yankees, you're coming off a World Series. You know, you're going to be in the postseason at this point. Still, you feel very confident the team's good enough to be a postseason team. You're looking for pitchers and players exactly like this. And I remember celebrating. I was one of those Yankee fans celebrating. I was very pleased to hear they were getting Cliff Lee. And it absolutely changed. And especially you lose to the team you went to. He pitches great against you in the postseason. And absolutely, it changed the fate of the 2010 New York Yankees. Yeah, they played Texas in the ALCS that year. And I think one of the more forgotten moments of that championship series, because I always say history is written by the winner. So if you lose a series, you forget about great moments. They played game one in Texas. They were down (coughs) 5-0 in that game late. They were down 5 nothing in the seventh inning of game one of the ALCS. They were down 5-1 to one in the eighth inning, and they came back. They rallied against the Texas bullpen yep. in a game which I'm sure at the time everybody thought, mm-hmm. wow, they go into the World Series. They just won game one. They were down big. Mm-hmm. The problem was they lost game two. They got shut out by Cliff Lee in game three. They got destroyed in game four, and so they were down three games to one. One game five before losing game six in Texas, yep. all while knowing Cliff Lee was scared scheduled to pitch game seven. Lee only mm-hmm. pitched one game in that series, yep. which was a, a huge game. It was game three. It was the swing game yep. against Andy Pettit. But it's kind of amazing that that game one could have gone down in Yankee lore as, oh, my God, they're down 5 nothing, 5-1 yep. to one in the eighth inning. And meanwhile, it's a footnote because they ended up losing that series to Texas. Yep. No, absolutely. And I'm trying to think back to what I remember from that series. Uh, I do remember feeling like, man, we can't hit Cliff Lee. I remember Josh Hamilton having a monster season. A series, and I remember Alex Rodriguez striking out to end the that, series. There it is. That's those are the things that I remember. And you're right. You know what? Look, I was looking back on it. I remember they won Game One, and I remember it was a late inning rally. But I, looking back on it and reading about it just for doing this podcast, it doesn't stand out to me. No, I agree. And I, it's unfortunate because you're right. It could have been a great moment. But it doesn't stand out because of the way the rest of the season, the series played out. It's funny you say that when I being honest, but besides looking at looking back at things, here are the two memories I have about that ALCS. Number one was that the Philadelphia Phillies were in the NLCS and they were down three to one as well. And I had this fear. Oh, my God, we're going to get Yankees Phillies again. And both of these teams are going to come back from three games to one down. Because remember, the Phillies won game five and the Yankees won game five. So both teams were able to extend the series and at least force a game six. And the only other memory I have about that series was A-Rod striking out. I mean, you're 100% right. And the reason I thought it is because A-Rod struck out looking. 
Mm-hmm. Now, why does that matter? Huh. It matters because I, I've always been a big Carlos Beltran defender, and 2006 is right. not that far removed from 2010. No. And so I was thinking, wait a second. Why isn't A-Rod going to go down as the guy that couldn't get the bat off his shoulder? And, you know, Beltron is, but A-Rod isn't. And the other thing I remember, which is in the NLCS, is the Philly series ended with Ryan Howard striking out looking. Hmm. So both series ended with prominent players, Ryan Howard of Philadelphia, certainly at the time, A-Rod of the Yankees, both striking out looking, yet very few people actually remember they right. struck out looking, yet Beltron, I mean, yeah, that's you know the number one memory of Met fans. So that, that's one of the things that jumps out at me. Right. From well, to be fair, both players had won World Series in recent history at that point, and Alex Rodriguez was you know just coming off having that playoff run. But I agree. Uh, I, do, I do remember it. As a Yankee fan, I do remember it, and I Thank do remember you. it being looking, and I do remember, you know, the immediate disgust and turning off the television and going to sit in somewhere dark, which is my typical when the Yankees season ends, just going somewhere and genuflecting in the dark for an hour or so. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. You know what? Coming off the 2009 year and that's, I mean, I remember Lance Berkman that season. I'm yep. trying to, I, I try and look back on things I remember from that year. Um, it was still in the stretch of, uh, I went to every opening day for a five year stretch before I, I, you know, started working afternoons here at the station, uh, I remember Nick Johnson uh, coming out to Miley Cyrus and <laughs> party in the USA and opening day. I'm thinking, why the hell would you come out to this song? And then I remember Alex Rodriguez striking out to end the, the season and still feeling, you know, fairly confident about the team. Uh, so uh, going into 2011, I still had a lot of high hopes for this. Curtis Granderson was unbelievable, hit 40 home runs. So I still had some, uh, I had high hopes for the team going into 2011. You know, it's funny, uh, for the 2010 New York Mets, and there are many years in this decade that are going to feel very similar. And that's really what this decade was. There was a lot of years that had some similarities. I had a lot of hopes going into the 2010 season because if you remember, obviously the Mets got to the seventh game of the NLCS in 06, and in both 07 and 08, they had good years but collapsed at the end. You know, yeah. they finished well above 500. They were in a pennant race. Yep. 2009, the first year of City Field, was an absolute disaster. Everybody got hurt, and it was just a meltdown kind of year. And I think when you have a bad season, one bad season, you think, all right, well, things can't be that bad again. This team should bounce back. Mm-hmm. And so in 2010, I had hope. You know, Jerry Manuel was the manager again. It was still the Omar Minaya era. And I went into the season thinking, all right, they should be in a pennant race. And what many people may forget is that the New York Mets in the middle of July were right there. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were 10 games above 500 at one point. They may have even gotten to 11 games above 500. And then in the middle of July, and I, was, I got to see it up close and personal, they had a long West Coast trip. They went to San Francisco, Arizona, and L.A., And they got absolutely destroyed. And I remember it because that was one of the trips I made with my dad. We went to Arizona and then drove to Los Angeles. And the Mets just, I mean, not only were they losing games, there were some brutal losses. There was an extra inning game against the Diamondbacks in Arizona. We were there. I don't know how many Mets fans saw it because the game probably ended at 3 o'clock in the morning Eastern time. The game went 14 innings. It was just a slow death That's what that game was. And so a season that for the first half of the year seemed prominent, like, okay, this isn't terrible. Right. All of a sudden just went down the proverbial toilet. It was awful. And it was also the first year of Jason Bay. So on that trip in L.A., Jason Bay collides with the fence. 
He gets a concussion. Mm-hmm. It basically ruins his season. And that was the big debate during the offseason. So the Yankee debate was, hey, they're going to bring back Hideki Matsui. With the Mets, it was right. they're coming off this bad season in 09. They have to do something. And the mm-hmm. big free agents that were out there were John Lackey, Matt Holliday, and Jason Bay. Right. And look, Joe admits this, and I think a lot of Mets fans admit this. They wanted Jason Bay. They wanted Jason Bay because he performed in Boston. So they assumed Mm -hmm. if he could perform in Boston, he'll be okay in New York. I wanted John Lackey and Matt Holliday. I wanted those guys, mainly because I wanted another starting pitcher. I didn't realize R.A. Dickey was actually going to be good. Right. And R.A. Dickey had a huge year in 2010. That was the beginning of his career renaissance with the Mets. Johan had a pretty good year that year. I mean, the Mets were not a terrible baseball team that year, especially when you look at the final numbers. And I, I preferred Matt Holliday because I thought flat out Matt Holliday was a better player than Jason Bay, despite the fact that there were going to be more questions about Holiday handling New York than Jason Bay. And, I, and I'm sure you remember. Were you? I do. I also remember, I, I, I remember hearing, I don't know if it was a big storyline, but I have to admit, for some reason it sticks out in my mind, when they were comparing the two, the idea that Jason Bay pulls the ball down the line more and right. with, uh, with Yankee, with uh, City Field's dimensions, that they thought his, his swing and his ability to pull the ball where Matt Holiday would go the opposite way right. bit, would play better to the stadium. For yes. some reason, that stands out to me as a reason why, uh, why Jason Bay was, uh, was picked. But listen, you know, uh, yeah, you have me on here because I'm a Yankee fan. I remember Jason Bay. As a, as a Boston Red Sox, he killed the Yankees. Yeah. He was terrific as a Red Sox. I was so pleased to see him sign with the New York Mets and get him the hell out of Boston. So, I mean, I'll be honest. You know, we, we, now Jason Bay is one of those guys we laugh at as one of these terrible signings, you know, a decade later. But at the time, I mean, I didn't think it was a bad signing at all. Yeah, and, and to be fair, while I didn't prefer him over yeah. Holiday and Lackey, right. I didn't think it was a bad signing either. Yeah. I mean, the guy was no, coming I mean, off a yeah. good year in Boston. Yeah. And he's one of those weird guys where his best year with the Mets, and I know that sounds like an, his best year with sure. the Mets, but was actually his first year. He got mm-hmm. worse as time went by. Yeah. And Mike broke that story. I give Francesa credit. He was the one who was the first to report the Mets are going to sign Jason Bay. Yeah. And if you remember, that signing dragged out for weeks. Like it was rumored for weeks right. and months. Right. And it sounded as if no one else really wanted Jason Bay, which yeah. at the time didn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. But looking back on it, yeah. it made perfect sense. But yeah. the, the season really turned into just a slog after the first half of the year. I mean, they were 11 games above 500. You're mm-hmm. thinking they're in a pennant race and they absolutely fall apart. But at the time, you know, when you look back at what they had on their roster, they had a 23-year-old Ike Davis. Yeah. They had an in-their-prime Jose Reyes and David Wright. Even Angel Pagan was looking like he was going to be a pretty good major leaguer. Right. And their rotation featured a 23-year-old John Neese, mm-hmm. a 26-year-old Mike Pelfrey. Johan Santana had a pretty good year, and he was only 31. And yep. even R.A. Dickey, who turned out to be the best pitcher on their staff, had a really good renaissance year. So the Mets... It didn't look like it was all hell, especially at the halfway point with that kind of core. But things got so bad, they ended up finishing under 500 that that's when they fired Omar Minaya right after the season and eventually fired Jerry Manuel. So the Omar Minaya era lasted one year in the new decade, mm-hmm. 2010. And that's when, little did I know at the time, things were actually about to get worse because they were embroiled in the whole Madoff scandal. The mm-hmm. payroll was about to go down. Reyes was going to be gone in a couple of years. And eventually, as we know, you know, things would turn around in about five years. But right. 2010 was the end of the Omar era. And who knew at the time, 11 games above 500 in late June, early July, how bad things would get for that franchise. 
Yeah, I mean, and you know, looking at it now, you're right. I mean, I'm just looking at the stats. I mean, Pelfrey won 15 games. Almost every top reliever had an ERA below four. I, you know, three, three, you know, uh, they weren't bad. Feliciano, Acosta. I mean, they they were. Francisco Rodriguez had a good year. I mean, they really weren't that bad. They weren't. It was just a collapse late in the year, and then obviously it all went to hell. Yeah. Uh, 2011, the New York Yankees are coming off the, you know, right. disappointing loss in the American League Championship Series. They still have that same core together. But the core, you know what's funny about this core? This core is really starting to get older now. Yes. Because Jeter, and I know we don't really criticize Jeter that much, and I'm not sure what we were saying back in 2011, 2010, mm-hmm. 2012, but you look at his numbers. Yeah. He was not the same guy. I, mean, I know his batting average was respectable, but his yeah. OPS was way down. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the same guy. Posada was <clears throat> a shell of his former self. Yeah. In fact, going into the 2011 season, they added Russell Martin yep. to become their, you know, pretty much their everyday catcher. Posada yeah. became more of a designated hitter. A-Rod is now into his mid-30s and missed a big chunk of that season. Yep. Teixeira wasn't old, and Teixeira was still pretty productive. But as you can see, the Yankees were getting a little bit older. That was actually the year they added Freddie Garcia and Bartolo Colon to their rotation. And both guys were actually not even that bad. They were pretty good. I remember Freddie Garcia. He actually, I was surprised with how well he pitched. Freddie Garcia was pretty good that year. Yeah, he wasn't bad. And, you know, CeCe was still at the top of his game. Mm -hmm. Uh, Phil Hughes was still in that mode of, is he a starter? Right. Is he a reliever? Yep. What are we doing with him? They added Rafael Soriano to the bullpen, which I yep. remember the Soriano signing was Cashman didn't want him, but the other guys in the front office did. I remember right. some kind of issue with that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember that specifically. I remember uh, I, I remember the I remember when I think of Soriano, I think of 2012 and for and we'll get to that next uh, sure. you know, but uh, I remember him not being great and then stepping up in 2012. I remember Boone Logan. Uh, and then I just remember the, you know, Mariano still being great and David Robertson starting to emerge yeah. uh, as, as one of the better relievers in the league. Yeah, you saw that their bullpen, which has now been a strength for a very long time, yeah. uh, certainly became one. And there wasn't really much of a pennant race. I think they took over first place in early September and pretty much ran away with it yeah. and never really had much of an issue. So unlike 2010, where they had to settle for a wild card spot in 2011, they actually won the American league Eastern division, which set them up for a first round series against the Detroit Tigers at the time. The other first round series was Texas against Tampa again. Mm-hmm. So it was actually the same matchup. Yeah. And I think that the Yankee fan was assuming, all right, let's get, let's get back to Texas. Let's get a, let's get a rematch right. with the Texas Rangers. And obviously that was not the case in that five game series with Detroit. No. Yeah. And you know what? Just more of the reason why I hate the Detroit Tigers. I mean, the Yankees, <laughs> the honestly, the Yankees haven't performed well against the Detroit Tigers for all, for every Minnesota twin. There's a, there's an angel and a, and a Detroit Tigers because I mean, I, they, they had no, they should have won this series. They just should have won it. They should have, I, I remember feeling just sick at the end of, at the end of the postseason on this one, because they scored a ton of runs in the games they won. If I, if I remember it correctly. Right. And I'm trying to look back now. Yeah. 
Yeah, they win game one, nine, three. It's the same. It's, you know, you just feel confident about the team. They had a good year. They win the division again. They're playing a, a, a Detroit team that's good, but you just feel the Yankees are better then. Well, and, and you know what? When you look back at this Tiger team, what I think jumps out at people is, wow, they had a rotation of Justin Verlander, right. Max Scherzer, right. Rick Porcello, and Doug Fister. That's pretty yeah. crazy. In fairness, Scherzer was not Scherzer yet. No. You know, especially when you look back at what he was in the regular season that year, he was still a, a developing arm. So he was not that same dominant guy. Mm-hmm. In fact, and I guess it was because the Tigers were in some kind of pennant race down the stretch. I don't really recall what that race looked like. Right. But Doug Fister started game one in this series. And Doug Fister was the guy in line to pitch game five. And I think that's probably where you had the confidence. Yeah. The Yankees won game four, and you nailed it. The two games the Yankees won, they scored a ton of runs. Right. They scored nine runs and ten runs. Yeah. But they beat up Rick Porcello in game four, and they forced this winner-take-all game five. And I remember saying this on the radio that day. I said, look, I think Doug Fister's going to pitch well. I was right about that part. But here was where I was wrong. I said, if you can have this game be a close game, with Jose Valverde on the mound late yeah. at Yankee Stadium, yep. you will beat him. You will beat him. Mm-hmm. And that's not exactly what happened. Fister no. gave him five strong. Scherzer actually came out of the bullpen in this game. He was whatever. Joaquin Benoit came out of the pen. And then Jose Valverde came into this game in a one-run game in the bottom of the ninth inning facing Granderson, Cano, and A-Rod. And so... As this ninth inning was starting, I was thinking back to to what I said on the air. And listen, I'll always admit this to you. Of course, you want to be right. Okay, of course. When you're on the radio, you're on the radio. You want to be right. Sure. As long as it's not against your own interests. And so if I'm right about the Mets sucking, I'm not going to be happy. But I found myself really wanting to be right, even though it meant something good for the Yankees. Because the last thing I wanted to see was Jose Valverde after I was killing the fat guy. Ah, he stinks. They'll get to him. Yankees, they... The last thing I wanted to see was Jose Valverde have the easiest one, two, three inning in the world. And that's exactly what he did. He got a one, two, three inning, including striking out A-Rod to end it for the second straight year. The Yankee season ends with A-Rod striking out. Yep. And so a part of me was a little disappointed that I could have been so wrong about Valverde. But then another part of me was just stunned. Like, I really didn't think... That in a one-run game at Yankee Stadium in the bottom of the ninth inning with that guy on the mound, yep. that he would not only get out of it and get a save and send the Tigers to the American League Championship Series, but I never thought he would make it look that easy. No. And, you know, just looking at the stats now, they outscored them 28-17, and they got game five in their building. I, it, it's a frustrating, frustrating loss. It's the 2006 against the Tigers, 2000. Um, 11 against the Tigers, 2012 against the Tigers. I hate the Tigers. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. And, you know, that's why when, you know, a lot of this, you know, anti-Yankees and Mets stuff and all the different things, like, I hate the teams that beat me. And I have very, I have distinct memories of the Tigers winning game five in the series against the Yankees in that building where I completely agree with you. I remember the talk where it was just the Yankees got it to game five. It was almost the same as um, it reminded me of 03, when the feeling was just get the Marlins back to Yankee Stadium. Right, you're not right. going to lose to the Marlins in Yankee Stadium. And it was the same kind of feeling. You're not going to lose this game to Fister and the Tigers at your own building. And to have it end the way it ended with that, where you're, you're completely right. The back end of that bullpen, that's what you're trying to get to in a close game. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where 
they had no business losing the series. They outscored them 28-17. They had yep. no business losing the series. And what ended up happening, 2009 was a fleeting memory. A-Rod went yeah. two for 18 yep. in that series, and yep. he started to take the heat again. That yep. Look, to that, basically the sense a lot of Yankee fans had was 2009 was a fluke. Mm-hmm. Great. He carried us to a championship. That's fantastic. Right. But as we know, the bar's a lot higher with the Yankees, and he was still putting together these dreadful postseasons. And that yep. 2011 series against Detroit kind of followed suit. He was yep. awful. And, of course, as we mentioned, he ended it by striking out. It wasn't looking this time. Right. But nevertheless, he struck no, out. And you, you just, you're absolutely right. I remember feeling like that because at the, the, the end of the, the Tory era and all the ALDS losses – um, the 2009 began to look like a blip on the screen. It definitely did. You started to see Alex Rodriguez go back to struggling, uh, the not coming up with the big spot, losing the big game. You knew the rotation wasn't really good enough to to be dominant anymore. You got you know, yeah, CC's all right, but as and we just praised Freddie Garcia, but still, it's Freddie Garcia making you know postseason starts and just and you know Ivan Nova, and you just felt like this team was starting to slide, and you knew the team was getting older. I remember not feeling as con- I, I remember feeling at the end of that year that I'm not liking the direction of this team. Yep. No, you started to sense that things were going backwards. For the Mets, my expectations were a lot lower going into 2011. They changed everything. They brought in Sandy Alderson. They brought in Terry Collins, who at the time was a very uninspiring managerial hire. We had heard about what happened with him in Anaheim and what happened with him in Houston. And what I thought upon that hire was he is a caretaker. The Mets are clearly going to go through some kind of weird retooling or rebuilding. And eventually, when the Mets are good, Terry Collins is not going to be the manager. That turned out not to be true. Right. But much like the previous season, the Mets were actually not that bad for a bulk of it. Not that I ever thought they were going to win the division. They were never in a divisional race. But they were hanging around 500. And they got another productive year out of R.A. Dickey. Now you started to buy as a legitimate guy in this rotation. But in late August, things just start. Really, I guess it was early September. Things just started to collapse. They just started to be awful. And so a season that looked like it was sort of respectable, a season that looked okay, started to just go out of control. And there were a lot of familiar similarities from this season. Number one, Jason Bay stunk. That was yeah. number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, David Wright had an injury. Number three, you saw the emergence of some young players. Nick Evans was called up. Daniel Murphy was called up. Little do we know at the time how good Daniel Murphy would turn out to be. Though I right. will say when Murphy was first called up, he was tremendous. For some reason, I think it was in Colorado he was called up. And there were callers to this radio station asking, can Daniel Murphy win a triple crown? I think someone called up <laughs> Mike asking that question, and he almost you know, lost right. his you-know-what. Yeah, sure. But Ike Davis suffered that injury. Yeah. That was the year where Ike Davis ran into David Wright in Colorado. So uh, it was... A lot happens to the Mets in Colorado, apparently. (laughs) Yes. Isn't that Ryan Church flying to Colorado? Right? Was that... Yes. So they have a lot of uh, issues. Well, it all starts because the Mets actually played the first ever... I think it was the first game at Coors Field they ever played Mm -hmm. was played by the New York Mets. But the highlight of this season, and this is weird to call this a highlight, but the biggest storyline of this season was that it was the end of the Carlos Beltran era. And even upon his end, there was rip of him, led by my partner Joe Beningo. Here's what they would say about Carlos. Of course he's healthy. Of course he's having a productive season. It's a contract year. Right. So even upon Beltron, 
in the final year of his deal, hitting 290, mm-hmm. 15 home runs in 98 games. Not bad. You know, pretty productive year out of yeah. Carlos. Even after all the controversy with the Mets, he has an injury. He's getting surgery on his own. Right. The Mets don't approve it. Mm-hmm. He's given you a productive final year. And I liked it because, A, he's productive. But we all knew they're going to trade him. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be that first significant move of the Sandy Alderson era. How is he going to do? What is he going to get? Where are they going to send him? Is Carlos going to go somewhere and lead that team to a championship? And we all know what ended up happening. They trade him to the San Francisco Giants. They get back Zach Wheeler, who, you know, all these years later was actually a productive man. I know he had the Tommy John surgery. Yeah. As of this recording, he has not left the New York Mets, but I think we are all under the yes. impression that he will. And Beltron goes to San Francisco and was good in San Francisco, but the Giants were not very good. No. The Giants were not on that even-year championship I, run. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> I was going to say, well, it was an odd year. Exactly. It was an odd year. Unbelievable, so, yeah. But, but you know, to, to Carlos's credit with St. Louis, with your team, the Yankees, with Texas, and then finally with Houston in 17, the latter part of his career, which surprisingly lasted seven more years, I never would have thought that when the Mets traded him in 2011. It's At 34 true. years old, you say, ah, he's got two, three years left in him. Beltron actually had some pretty productive years, mm-hmm. specifically with St. Louis, and actually with your team, too. He wasn't bad as a New York Yankee. No, he wasn't bad. But looking back on it, I liked the trade at the time, even oh. though we didn't know what Zach Wheeler was. And I think everybody's got to admit, one of the best trades of the Alderson era. Yeah, and he was, I, I just remember Wheeler being a top prospect. Uh, you know, someone, you know, that was, you know, throwing 99 miles an hour, a top prospect with the Giants organization that, you know, was obviously a good one, won, had won a World Series uh, the year before. And for Carlos Beltran to get a stud ace pitcher at the end of Carlos Beltran's career. And you remember, like you said, everything that was going on with him and the way the fan base felt about him, I thought it was a slam dunk trade. I thought they did a great job with it. And they certainly did. And for the Giants, they probably regret it. They didn't make the playoffs. And obviously they gave up a piece like Zach Wheeler. But the other big storyline of 2011 was the question, do you do the same thing with Jose Reyes? Jose Reyes is a free agent at the end of the year. And I think most Met fans, and we'll get to the bunt, because obviously that's... Probably the biggest story of the 2011 Mets season. Yep. But prior to the bunt, most Met fans wanted to keep Jose Reyes. They wanted to re-sign Jose Reyes. And why not? I mean, he was 28 years old. He was having the best year of his career. He was on his way to winning a batting title and Mm -hmm. statistically had the best year of his career, Mm -hmm. even if the stolen bases were way down from what they were previously. But Reyes... Missed some time that year, just like he had the year before, just like he had the year before. Reyes was proving to be, even through the prime of his career, a guy that you couldn't really rely on to play 160 games. But I think the common belief was, if you're not going to re-sign him, if you are going to you know, kind of tighten up the budget, and we know why now because of the Madoff scandal, you got to trade him. The guy was in the midst of winning a batting title. If right. you were able to get Zach Wheeler for Carlos Beltran, what Imagine, were you going to yeah. be able to get for Reyes? Mm-hmm. And... So I, at the time, here's what I thought. I thought that the Mets were going to make a, a big effort to keep him, and if they lost him, the rationale would be, we'll take the compensatory pick and we'll do something productive with it. Right. Because remember, when the Mets lost Mike Hampton to Colorado, they used the compensatory pick to select David Wright. So there is this history of, hey, if you lose a big free agent, you get this pick back, and hopefully you'll turn it into something. I thought the Mets would make an effort. Uh, I don't think they actually did. 
I think their effort was, yeah, if Reyes is going to work for peanuts, we'll bring him back. And obviously what made it worse is that he signed with the Marlins. But before that, we've got the bunt. He's trying to secure a batting title. Final game of the regular season. I think it was the first inning of the game. Lays down a bunt, gets a hit, takes himself out of the game. It caused FAN controversy for days. What was your <laughs> thoughts on it? Yeah, I hate it. You know, you know I, and I would hate it even more if I were a Met fan. I hated it. Uh, you know, all the... You know, for the stories of Ted Williams playing both games of a doubleheader to hit 400. I mean, I'm not bunting and then coming out of the game. And I remember what I remember more about it was the reaction of the manager and where he was practically in tears. Right. Wasn't uh, he practically in tears defending it? Yes. Uh, very passionate. I, very passionate about defending it. Yeah. I'm not I'm going out there and I'm playing the games. Uh, I'm sorry. I just I it's it seems as if, and I know it's a dead season, and I know they're not going to the postseason, and I know, look, it's, it's a nice thing to have a batting title, but you have to realize that it will always be discussed as such. We don't, every time you mention Jose Reyes in that batting title, the bunt comes up. I wouldn't want that. And I know that's, you know, I'm, I'm not sure in his contract if he got bonuses for winning a batting title, but you know what? He knew he was about to get paid. And for me, I'm going out there and I'm swinging the bat. And if I hit 336 instead of 337 and whoever else, you know, overclips me by, you know, percentage points, I can live with it. But I can't live with bunting coming out of the game and the, my entire fan base thinking I'm weak. Well, I defended him. I still defend him to this day. Yeah. And I, I admit my defense features a lot of whataboutism. And uh -huh. I don't like doing that. But... Right. I do want to be fair that this is not a, a new thing. Wade Boggs did something very right. similar to this. That's true. And so it, it doesn't mean I think he's the most noble guy in the world. It doesn't yeah. mean that I, I love it. Loving it is not the correct answer, but I also don't no, I think it was the worst thing in the world because guys do this. Guys want to win batting titles. It's the last game of the season. Right. The game doesn't matter. Right. The Mets are out of it. Where it became controversial more so was the fact that he was a free agent at the end of the year, right. and there was a belief that he was gone. And so it was more not him bunting, coming out of the game to win the batting title, more than it was he's ending his Met career this way, right? which turned out to be the case until they brought him back yeah. in 2016, which little did we yeah. know. But that was what I think caused a lot of anger from Met fans, right. and I understood that. But I, it still didn't bother me. Yeah, like, I mean... I do want to make I listen, he still won the batting. I'm not trying to tell you that I think it's faulty or that, you know, I mean, it's 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 fair. That's it's the way you could play the game. It's fair. And, and we've seen it before. Like you said, Wade Boggs and everything. I just and I, I don't I wouldn't like it if I if I were a Red Sox fan with Wade Boggs. I just think you play the games out. That's what that's how you that's how you go about playing baseball. And like you said, you know, it's the last game possibly of your Met career. You know, finish the game. Looking back on it, you know, history uh, does funny things when you have more than five minutes or a day or two to look back at something. As we sit here uh, seven years later, eight years later, whatever it is, is it a big deal? I mean, thinking back on it, is it a big deal now when you think about it? No. No, I agree with Not you. I think, I think time heals all wounds. Yeah, and I no think one, that yeah. when the Mets brought him back in 2016, and obviously the biggest thing on people's mind was why he was brought back, which was he was involved in a domestic violence incident, which caused right. the Colorado Rockies to say, we have to get rid of this guy. Yeah. So I think that was the number one thing on people's mind, rightfully so. But I don't think anybody thought about the bunt. Yeah, I think it was completely out the window. And by the way, there has been a lot of really good Mets who they've let go in the prime of their careers as free agents. Edgardo Alfonso was one yep. uh, the decade prior. And I think in the Reyes situation, not as bad as Alfonso, but similar. Even if it was done for the wrong reasons, 
The Mets made the right decision to let him go. Yeah, it absolutely did. Jose Reyes never came close to the production he gave the Mets in 2011 or mm-hmm. the production he gave the Mets in 2008 or even all the way back in 2006. He was never nearly as good. No. He had a good first year in Miami. Yep. He went out there and played every single game. God bless him. And he played 160 games and had good production, not great production. But after that, I mean, Jose Reyes was a shell of his former self, and that was into his early 30s. Mm-hmm. And once they brought him back, it didn't matter. They weren't paying him anything. So right. I don't even, I don't even no, include yeah. that. Absolutely. No, they absolutely made the right move, letting him go. I mean, at the time, you wouldn't think so. And I remember, you know, since we incorporate the the fan here, I just remember Mike getting a lot of calls and talking about how it was time to break up the core. And, you know, he wanted to, even if you had to move on from right, just it was enough where you could see that this team wasn't going to get over the top with these guys as the core of the the team, Uh, whether right or wrong, that was his opinion. I just remember getting a lot of traction. But, yeah, at the time, I still felt like, you know, you want to keep Reyes, but at the same time, the Marlins gave him a lot of money. I would have been, I, I, I didn't expect the, the Mets to match that contract. And I just, I never thought like, oh no, what are the Mets going to do? Right. I never, I never felt that way. I was more concerned with, uh, you know, we talked about Beltran's year with 15 home runs, uh, led the team. That's more of the issue than necessarily, you know, Reyes leaving. The fact that, you know, Beltron traded it halfway through the year with 15 home runs, led the team and Jason Bay's got one home run. Right. And, and you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. 12 RBIs and no. he played he played 123 games amazing at 12 home runs and 57 RBIs my god amazing now let's go to 2012 2012 is such a fascinating to me a fascinating year in yeah. New York Yankee history yes. because I agree. first of all they won 95 games and they won the American League East. so let's get that out of the way yep. they had a pretty good year the yeah. drop-off is not here yet we're going to get to the drop-off which is the following season but there are three monumental things that happened in 2012. And to me, here are the three monumental things. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Mariana Rivera gets her shagging fly balls in the outfield. Right. That's number one. I yep. mean, and De- I, devastating, by the way, just absolutely oh my devastating God. in Kansas city. If I'm not mistaken, it was in Kansas city. Yep. And what we find out probably the day of, or a few days later is that Mariano had every intention of retiring at the end of the year. That yep. 2012 was going to be his final year. But he was not going to go out like that. So, and, and I never doubted that. I never for a second thought that Mariano Rivera would allow him to be, you know, the, the image of him being driven off by, you know, the, bull, the bullpen cart or whatever. Yeah. Getting driven off in that injury with his head in his hands. Allow, I never for a second thought he would allow that to be the last moment of him. As no question. I never, never for a second. And, and, you know, just more on the Mariano thing, we, we would always say, I would certainly always say, Mariano's great, but you'll realize he's even greater than you realize when they mm-hmm. have to replace him. Yeah. And that turned out really not to be true because uh, Rafael Soriano, who we had mentioned, yeah. who was signed a year earlier, sort of controversially, I don't think yep. Cashman wanted him, stepped in as the closer. And I'm not going to tell you he was Mariano Rivera, though he did have 42 saves, ironically enough. Yeah. But he had a dominant, dominant had, season. Had a terrific season. He had a 2.26 ERA with, you know... How many, how many saves? 42, 42 saves, saves. That's, yeah. That's, that's a great year. Great. And year. David Robertson, uh, you know, and Boone Logan was good that year. And I know this isn't necessarily about 2012, but just to get to your point, um, the two Hall of Famers from, this, from that great era in New York Yankee baseball, Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera, I think bo- every Yankee fan said the same thing. 
How are they even going to be the Yankees? How are they going to move on when Mariano Rivera and Derek Jeter are gone? And the Yankees have done such a remarkable job because, honestly, the back end of the bullpen, whether you're talking about 2012 or yep. the rest of the decade we get to, has never been something that's cost the Yankees. It's, ama- it's, you it's know- absolutely amazing. And to follow him up and to follow Jeter up with Didi, and you know we could talk about what they're going to do with Didi now for you know an hour if you wanted to, but the idea that both of those guys left and it didn't, it let alone kill the Yankees, it didn't even really hurt them, is amazing. No, you're right, and I think that this was our first glimpse at life after yep. the core four because Jeter yep. wasn't retiring yet, Mariano no. wasn't retiring yet, even Andy Pettit was still around. Yeah, though I don't know if I look at him in the same light as the other two, as great as he was. Right, this was our first glimpse at it. And it never cost them. I mean, again, they won 95 games. They won the American League East. It was weird to see Soriano closing games, but he did a great job of filling in. So that was number one. Number two, and this one I'll never forget, and I was lucky enough to be there because in 2012, when the Yankees won the division, this was the, the beginning of the new wild card era. And so upon that, you got to face a team in your division in the first round for the first time. There always used to be a rule that you can't face a team in your division right. in the opening round. So obviously they were set up against the Baltimore Orioles in a very weird format yep. where the first two games would be in Baltimore and the yes. last three would be at Yankee Stadium. And it ended up being a game five. CC Sabathia won the game five at Yankee Stadium. It was a really yep. good series between the Yankees and the Orioles. Nate McClouth Nate with McClough. Uh, just a, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> a couple right. of foot foul. A home run that would have killed the Yankees. But That's yes, right. Nate, Mike's Nate favorite McLeod. player, Nate McLeod. Mike's favorite player, Nate McLeod. Nate McLeod. Uh, Nate McLeod. <laughs> he's pretty good. It was, a, it was a great series, but the one yes. thing I noticed, because I was at Game 5, and I was right. at a lot of these games, yeah. was that there was no secondary market for these tickets. The, the fan base of the New York Yankees was just very disinterested in this team. And, mm. I mean, you could tell me why, but the facts certainly back it up. I mean, postseason games were not the hot ticket that it used to be. Now, you want to tell me it was just old hat by that point? Mm-hmm. My answer would be, well, that wasn't the case in the 2000s. Right. It wasn't like it was an easy ticket in 2003 to see them when they'd been in the playoffs. So I'm not sure what it was. I'm not sure if, you know, people had looked at the team and said, eh, Russell Martin, Mark Deshera, an aging A-Rod, Rob right. Banez, Curtis right. Granderson, Nick Swisher, yeah. Eric Chavez, right. Andrew Jones. Andrew Jones. <laughs> Ichiro, which right. was, that was the... Was that the year he was traded? Yeah, they got yeah, Ichiro so that's, that that's, year. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure why. I remember being psyched about the team. I uh, I remember thinking, uh, you know, that was a. I didn't want to lose that series to Baltimore. Certainly, uh, I remember getting pumped. You know, CC on the mound had that great start in Game Five, and I went uh, to Game One of the Tiger series, and we, we'll get to that in a second. And just you want to talk about you know devastation and the the the, the feeling in a building that just absolutely you know crumbled. And the just you could hear a pin drop at the end of that game uh, after Jeter's injury. Uh, but I re- I remember I'm surprised to hear that when you said that to me. I I, I thought that I was pumped for that game. I was not about well, to lose to the Baltimore Orioles well, at Yankee Stadium in Game Five when they played Game Three. Remember the Yankees won Game One in Baltimore, lost Game Two in Game in Baltimore. It's tied one one. They're coming back to Yankee Stadium. I went on StubHub about two hours before first pitch. The tickets were dirt cheap. I called my dad up. I said, let's go. Let's go. Mm -hmm. So we go. And what game three is famous for is that the Yankees were down two to one in the bottom of the ninth inning. 
And do at the plate was uh, Alex Rodriguez. Right. Who was batting third for the New York Yankees that day. Yep. And at that point was 0 for 3 with two strikeouts. They're down by a run. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. And all of a sudden, after Ichiro lines out to left field, we notice, we look down, because I'm sitting in the upper deck, and I see a Banyas. Yep. And my, my initial reaction is he's got to be hurt. Now, I'm not watching this on TV, so I don't know what they said on the broadcast, but when I see a Banyas pinch hitting for A-Rod, there was this audible gasp yep. at Yankee Stadium. It was so bizarre, and I'm so glad I was there yeah. to experience that. So there's just this gasp, and... You know, my dad and I are confused. Is he really pinch hitting for him? Is he hurt? What the hell's going on? And on the second pitch, Rala Banez hits a bomb of a home run to tie the game in the bottom of the ninth inning. And then, of course, because why not, in the bottom of the 12th inning, on the first pitch of Banez sees, (laughs) he hits a bomb of a home run. And so he hits a game tying in the ninth and a game winner walk off in the bottom of the 12th. That was a... Now, I know the Yankees end up losing in the LCS and the Jeter injury takes everything away. But that is one of the more remarkable Yankee postseason moments when you think about it. No, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. I thought the same thing. I said, what's wrong with A-Rod? And because there's just, you don't, you can't pinch hit for A-Rod in that spot. Like, I just, I never thought they would do it. I never thought Joe Girardi would have the stones to do it. And to have it work out the way, and then to have him end the game, the same thing. And then they do it again, game one of that series. A game one against the Tigers, he does the same thing again with Raul Abanez. And Raul Abanez comes through again. It was one of the more remarkable stretches there for a, a, an aging player who was, you know, getting pinch hit for one of the great players to ever live was unbelievable. Well, I got. I have to correct you because it's actually worse. In game one of the ALCS, right. he pinch hit A-Rod with Eric Chavez. It wasn't even Raul Abanez. Oh, the Raul Abanez hit the home running game. Well, that wasn't, he, he didn't pinch no, hit. No, he actually started that game. Oh, it was wow. the DH. But in a way, it makes it even worse that that shows yeah. you that Girardi was saying to himself, I can't even, I'm going to use Eric Chavez to pinch hit for A-Rod. Right. Which is, at that time, and we're not talking about superstar Eric Chavez by any stretch. Of the no, no, no. It, it's crazy. And so they win the series. And, and that ALCS is probably one of the most bizarre American League Championship Series you'll ever see. We all know the Yankees didn't win a game, which is rare in that history. But when you're talking about Raul Abanez getting big hits, the Yankees trailed game one against the Tigers 4 nothing in the bottom of the ninth inning. Mm-hmm. And Jose Valverde came in. Remember, I was a year too late on this, Chris. All right. right. <laughs> if I were two years. Uh, yeah, one year too late. Right. He comes in. Yep. Four-run lead. No big deal. Ichiro, it's a two-run homer. Okay, 4-2. No big deal. Mm-hmm. Walks to Shara. And then Ralabanez with two outs. It's a game-time two-run home run. Right. So the Yankees came back from 4 nothing down. Mm-hmm. The problem was they ended up losing, and the Derek Jeter injury kind of just kills everybody oh, yeah it absolutely it I, I i was in the building which i'm kicking myself i could have sworn that uh banya's pinch hit for a rod uh but um i i'm in the building he falls down and remember it's not one of these injuries that you know he didn't run into anybody like he's just going to his left and falls down right so you're not in the building i'm not sure what the hell's going on and he gets he gets you know helped off the field and the feeling, and especially non-contact injury, getting helped off the field the way he was, you're just, you're absolutely devastated. And remember, you know, uh, we just talked about Jeter kind of, uh, you know, teetering at the end of his career. He had a great 2012 season. He had, I think he led the league in hits. He really had a, a bounce back year. He, was, he had a, um, I think he finished in the top five in the MVP that year. And, you know, 
he was really, really good. And to have him fall like that in game one of the series, and you just, I, I'm telling you, I left that building knowing they weren't going to win a game in the well, series. Well, and, and also the timing of that injury is he went down in the 12th inning as the Tigers were taking the lead and eventually going on and winning that game. So right. you have two devastating things happening simultaneously. Number one, you're about to lose game one in your own building after this incredible comeback in the bottom of the ninth inning. Right. And two, you knew right away this is not a day-to-day Derek Cheater injury. This is an no. incredibly severe Derek Cheater injury that yep. may even affect the following season. So, oh, absolutely. And then, you know, we uh, I'm leaving the stadium and you're getting that on the phone because, like you said, the game went into extra innings. So the game ends, I don't know, uh, 40 minutes after the injury or something like that. Right. So there was some time. And by the time I remember walking out uh, and, you know, people were talking about it and I got the update on my phone or whatever. I called someone. I forget whatever technology was available to me in 2012. I can't remember now exactly how I got the news. But uh, I just remember th- hearing that he was going to be that he's out for the series. And it's a you know, it's a devastating injury. And I just remember thinking, that's it. There's, they're not going to win a single game. Yep. And they didn't. They no, ended up getting swept by the Detroit Tigers. And, and very yeah. quietly, in the nine games that they played in that postseason, yep. five against Baltimore, four against the Detroit Tigers, a fellow by the name of Robinson Cano went a combined three for 40 yeah, that, in yeah. those two games, that or two very, series. That is very quiet. Very quiet. Very three quiet. for 40. And, of course, at the end of the season, Robinson Cano would be a free agent. Right. Oh, actually, had, no, I think he, he had one more year with them, actually, if memory serves th- Yeah, I think, I think he did. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let me just double-check that, because I remember he had Yeah, a, he played 2013 with them. I forgot that. Yeah. And then he would be a free agent. And then he would be a free agent. <laughs> we'll but get would, to that later. But it's funny how, you know, postseason failures define certain players, and others it doesn't. Because right. Nick Swisher is defined as a failing Yankee postseason player. Yep. A-Rod, despite winning a championship in 2009, is defined as a failing postseason player. No question. Just the way it is. But that injury to Jeter was the end. Yep. Because from that moment forward, the Yankees were about to go through, and I I say this as a Met fan in a way that still makes me cringe. Right. Because when you win 84, 85 games, it's not a great year. No one's suggesting it is, but it's also not losing 90 games. It's not the same. But the Yankees were about to begin – a, let's say, four-year time period going into the rebuild of 17. Yep. A four-year time period that is the worst four-year time period for the New York Yankees since the pre-Joe Torre, Buck Showalter era. We're talking before you and I really understood everything that was happening right. with the Yankee franchise. That's how long the Yankees have had such sustained success. You may not like the 2007 Yankee team that lost to the Cleveland Indians in four. You may not love that team, but the bottom line is the Yankees were still a pretty good baseball team. They were going out and winning 90 games every year. So you've got to go back really to... The early 90s, yeah. Yeah, you got to go back to 92, 91, 90, and 89. That four-year period defined a worse time to be a New York Yankee fan. There was a playoff appearance mixed in, which we'll get to. Yeah. But all of a sudden, from 95 wins in 2010, 97 wins in 2011, 95 wins in 2012, the 2013 Yankees come about where they only win 85 games. And looking back at that team, they really, really sucked. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, you know, that's why when someone criticizes Girardi for saying, oh, look at all the years they missed the playoffs. Look yep. at that freaking team. That yep. team was garbage. Yep. They uh, and, you know, the, when you go to the Wikipedia uh, baseball reference, it'll give you the, the th- Pelagrian theorem. 
where where they should be. They they scored six hundred and fifty and gave up six seventy one, and the, and they should have won seventy nine games and they won eighty five. I completely agree with you for everything you just said about how it was a down period in Yankees history, and it no question was. And you look at the roster, you look at the guys who were on this team and how many games Jason Nix played and how terrible Vernon Wells was and Chris Stewart catching, you know, 109 games and Lyle Overbay, who actually wasn't terrible but for the Yankees. But you look at that, and I, I think it's the number one compliment in Joe, Torrey's, um, Joe Girardi's career as a Yankee. He never allowed it to get to a point where you were embarrassed to be a Yankee fan. And you know what? It easily could have been. And you know what? The, the Red Sox may have won a World Series in 2013, and ultimately, you know, you were about winning championships. So they had a better stretch. You can't argue it. But they had years where they completely fell off the table and finished in last place. They had disasters. The Yankees never had a disaster. No. And I know that's not good enough for a lot of Yankee fans, and I know they, should, they think Joe Girardi should have been fired for winning 85 games and not winning the World Series. But when you look at those teams, I think Joe Girardi did a tremendous job with this team. No question. Now let's get to a special year in my life. Let's do it. The 2012 New York Mets. Now that may sound like a joke. Why is that special? <laughs> they won 74 games. It was very typical of every year of this decade. The one pattern you're hearing is, hey, the Mets are off to a pretty good start. Hey, they're not that bad. Hey, things are okay. And then they completely fall off the table in the middle of July. This is a Met team in 2012 that went 74 and 88. Right. To this point, the worst year of this decade. There would be a year that gets worse, but 74 and 88, year two of Terry Collins. At what point, I think their high water mark was they were eight games above 500. Okay, not, not too bad. Right. They were actually sitting there in, I'd say, the middle of June, feeling like, hey, they're in a pennant race. Hey, they're not that bad. In fact, they were right. tied for first place on June 3rd. I know that doesn't seem like a big deal, but mm -hmm. <laughs> for no. us, it is a big deal, but that's not why this year was special. This year was special, and you know you could sit here and mock me all you want. I don't really give a damn. It was June first, two thousand twelve. June first, two thousand twelve. Uh, I decided to take a buddy of mine to the Met game. It was a Friday night at City Field. The Mets taking on the St. Louis Cardinals. Pretty good pitching matchup on tap. Johan Santana versus Adam Wainwright. Uh, decent crowd. You know nothing crazy. Decent crowd. My dad at this point is not going to every Met game with me. But the one thing that me and my dad would joke about, share about every time we would go to a Met game was when the opposing team first got a hit. When they got a hit, we would joke, all right, not tonight, right. not tonight. Well, that night, <laughs> things went a little different. Yep. Johan Santana got through the first, got through the second, got through the third, got through the fourth. Now, I faced a dilemma because at this point in 2012, my dad comes to a handful of games, but he also DVRs every game. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like commercials. So he'll start every game right. a little bit late. Okay. And I didn't know at what point am I supposed to inform my dad, hey, there's something cooking at City Field tonight. So in the sixth inning, which, you know, you could say is rather early. You know, That's a little early. It's a yeah. little early, but you got to understand, no. at this point, this is all we would oh, talk about. Right, yeah, okay. And you're starved for it. You've been called oh, through the desert for your entire Met fandom. Absolutely starved. Yep. And this is one of those no-hit bids that I didn't even realize, like, I usually pick up on it right out of the gate. Like I said, right. we always joke, because he was walking guys, mm -hmm. and there were guys on base, it never felt as if this is an obvious no-hitter. I mean, he had four walks, I think, right. in the first five innings of this game. But when he got through the sixth inning, and it was a one-two-three inning, 
the buzz began. Oh, my God, he's nine outs away. Mm-hmm. Holy crap. Now, it was a close game at the time. It was a 2 nothing game. So I, I call my dad. As soon as he picks up the phone, he's like, what's, what's going on? Uh-huh. I said, I think you should start the game. And he's like, really? He knew right. He's like, oh, so there, there's a bit going on right now. I said, all I'm saying is I think <laughs> you should start this game yeah. now. And if I were you, I'd move fast. Right. <laughs> so he's like, all right. That is, a dilemma. that is a dilemma, especially in baseball where, I mean, even a whisper of it is considered jinxing it. To, to, to call your dad and, and give him that information. I could understand sitting there going, what should I do? I, could, I, I actually could put myself inside Evan Roberts for a second. Thank you. As, as terrible as that just sounded. Yeah, well, you don't want to be inside <laughs> Evan Roberts. <laughs> you don't want to do that. No. Let me ask you a quick question, though, just before you get to yes. this. Um, did, did it, was it more of just that you wanted to see a Met throw a no-hitter, or did it really bother you that every, you know, it was always brought up that the franchise never had Everything. One? Okay. Everything. But, so, but it bothered you that, that people actually cared because to me, you know, I, I still think, um, isn't there, there's still a team, the Padres have never thrown one, right? right. That's, that's right. still the case. Like I, 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 I always find it, would it bother me if I were a Padre fan? No, right no, no, no. Here's, here's the part of it. That they're known for their pitching? Correct. And okay. so many of their pitchers went on and threw no hitters. I mean, okay, that's fair. That when and you th- for the Yankees, too. And right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Doc, David Cohen. I mean, yeah, come yeah, on. Yeah. But also the father of the no hitter, and father isn't the right word, so I'll just say the king of no hitters is Nolan Ryan. Yeah, that's true. And Nolan Ryan was a Met farmhand <laughs> and a contributor to the 69, 69 team. championship. And they yeah. trade him for Jim Fergosi, who now yeah. we think of as this, you know, lump of a manager. Right. Yeah, you know what? I, I never even, like, thought of that's true. So that is, that's a good point. I think it's all the above. Also, the geek that I am, I score every Met game. I score yep. a lot of baseball games. And I had never scored a no-hitter. I'd never sure. gotten an opportunity. And I always dreamt and had nightmares that I'm going to miss the day the Mets pitch a no-hitter. I'm just right. not going to be at that You're game. You're not going to be at the game, yeah. So the fact that I was there, I was with a buddy of mine who's not a real big baseball fan. He's actually from New Orleans, so it was just he kind of became a Mets fan through me, you know, because down in New Orleans, you're a Saints fan. You're an LSU fan. That's really what it's all about. Right. So he got into it upon moving to New York, but, yeah, it was cool that I got to experience it with him. He's a good dude, and I had my dad on the phone letting him know I did not know that the Beltron play should have been a base hit. Right. Keep that in mind because yeah. I'm oh, at the game. How right. do I know? Of course, of course, yeah. So that was more of an after effect. Yeah. Obviously, one of the great moments from this no-hitter, and the only reason why Met fans even remember this guy, was Mike Baxter making the, the yeah. incredible catch in left field against Yachty Molina. Let's not forget that. Yeah. It was Yachty who hit that baseball, that deep line drive in the seventh inning. Right. And I think when Baxter made that catch, you started to think, wow, this could happen. Mm-hmm. Wow, this could happen. So eventually, uh, you know, I think my dad caught up, I'm sure. He got through the eighth inning, got a big double play on Carlos Beltran after he walked Rafael for a call. The Mets pretty much had the game in hand. They were yep. up by a lot. And in that ninth inning, he gets Holiday out. He gets Alan Craig out. Uh, Alan Craig out, mm-hmm. and he falls behind David Freeze, one out away. I'm actually starting to sweat. The yeah. tears are starting to come down my eyes. <laughs> my fr- I said to my friend Nick. I said to him before the ninth inning. I said, I don't want to talk during this inning. All I'll say is, if they're about to do it, record it for me. You know, mm-hmm. it'd be it'd be nice to have that memory. And he's like, right. Okay, I got you. And so he did. So I actually have the memory of Johan getting the no-hitter. Nice. And he flashes to me as I'm celebrating, jumping around like a, like a child. <laughs> but when he fell behind David Freeze, I started screaming irrationally, 
walk him. I right. want Yachty. Because Yachty was on deck. Right. And then he, you know, he didn't walk him. He got you know, a couple of swings, and then finally the swing and a miss strikes out David Freeze on the 3-2 pitch. And it was euphoria. And, and I understand why you or anybody else would mock me. It's only a no-hitter. You didn't right. win anything. But I think growing up, this was the holy grail. This was the thing that you dreamt of seeing live, experiencing. The Mets had never had it before. And so I don't have any regrets all these years later. It was, it was awesome. And it was right. cool that it was Johan Santana. Yeah. I prefer it be Johan Santana than, you know, Eric Hillman or Pete Shurik or some right. nondescript guy. Right. So it, it was an incredible, incredible moment getting to witness that. Yeah, listen, I, I could understand. I, 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 and I, this isn't to sound smug. It's not. And sometimes I feel like you come out that way as a Yankee fan. But obviously it was, it was not an issue uh, for me as a Yankee fan. I never felt like there was something that was missing during the regular season where I needed to accomplish this before I could, like, you know, die or anything even, you know, it's a little bit hyperbole, but, you know, something along those lines. And I always wondered, like, looking back, why it meant so much. But it clearly did. And it was a great moment. And I'm not one for this. I know a lot of people go nuts, and certainly anti-Met guys. I know your producer probably throws it in your face every time this comes up with the Beltron hit. But you know what? You know how many no-hitters and perfect games along the way in history probably have something similar to that or yeah. even more or more egregious it's baseball they didn't have the instant replay yet it probably has happened a hundred times and a lot of these no hitters so i'm not one to look back and say hey it shouldn't be a no hitter it's absolutely a no hitter and also the same way i'm not you know i remember r.a dickey didn't r.a dickey have a one hitter yes where yes it, it, looking back it sh that shouldn't have been a hit correct well and to me you can't go <laughs> you can't go back and change that because he played the rest of the game without the pressure exactly of throwing a no hitter great call so yep. um to me that's it's a no hitter. It's a moment everyone can enjoy. And I, what the one thing I do want to apologize, not necessarily apologize, but I do remember. I think I saw it in your office. I, did you you frame the scorecard? Yeah, right. That you have for this, and I remember kind of laughing at you because it even had the weather and and everything <laughs> on it. And I was like, look at this guy. It's they scoring this game, blah, blah blah. And now since I have started scoring baseball games. So and a lot less important games than uh, the first no hitter have the weather attached to the scorecard. So I do want to apologize for any you know I don't think I ever called it to your face just behind your back. That's snick okay. Snickered about the station. That's okay. But um, no, listen, I forgive you. I, it's oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> but I do. I listen. I can. I can understand. I, I part of me will will never truly get why it meant so much, but it clearly did. And I just remember it being a big night for Mets fans. It was incredible. And a yeah. couple of things about that, because I want to get to R.A. Dickey's season and that game you're talking about in Tampa Bay. But yeah. the next start Johan made was at Yankee Stadium against the Yankees, a game I was in the building for. And I'm not going to lie to you, I was dreaming of Johnny Vandermeer. <laughs> yeah. I was dreaming of the back-to-back. -back. Sure. And he actually pitched a one, two, three first inning, a dominant first inning right. where he struck out Jeter. He struck out the Shara and I'm screaming in the upper <laughs> deck at Yankee stadium. Here we go. Right. Now what turned out to happen was batting practice. Cause in the second inning, he gives up a two run home run to Robinson Cano. Okay, fine. But then the following inning, he gives up back to back to back home runs to Cano Swisher and Andrew Jones. Wow. And unfortunately, not only does Santana get bombed, the Mets you know, lost that game by a ton, but that was really it for Johan Santana's Met career. And yeah. I know there's a lot of controversy about that no-hitter and if Terry Collins pushed him too far and you know if he would have pulled him after six or seven innings, even though that would have ruined the moment, right. if that would have salvaged Johan Santana's career. And I got to tell you, 
I don't, I just don't buy it. Yeah. I really don't, even though that turned out to be, amazingly enough, the final year of his career and really the final few starts he'd make in his career. Right. Look, he had missed the previous year to begin with. I'm not sure if cutting down that pitch count from whatever it was, 135 to 115, really would have made a difference. Just like Matt Harvey, which we'll get to much later yeah. at the pace of this podcast, we'll get to that in a week, yeah. that that <laughs> impacted his career. Right. I just, I don't buy it. And maybe that's me being naive. I just... I just because something happens after something yeah. doesn't connect the two no, things. No, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's preposterous. Let's. I mean, we. There's no, and it's not. If he threw, you know, I, I know David Cohn and some other guys have had notorious starts where they threw 160 pitches and it led to you know David Cohn's aneurysm, or at least that's what people will tell you. And um, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. He threw 100, what'd you say, 135 pitches? Yeah, something He's like that. He's going for the first no-hitter in Mets history. Everyone knows it's a big deal. There, there's nothing else that could have been done. You have to let him pitch. And there's no, you, you can't just assume that that, just because it was his crowning achievement and it went downhill from that point on, it's, it's, it's unfair to just go and make an assumption that that was what led to his demise. And, you know, it, I, he was starting, well, he was on the downslope before that anyway. Yeah. No, I, I listen. I agree with you. Yeah. Now, so, I mean, I, I, I don't put anything into that. Thank you very much. You're and, and, and one other thing about the no hitter, I want to get to Dickie in a second because this was his crowning, uh, crowning season. Um, because I witnessed the pinnacle, Johan yes. Santana doing it for the Mets. Right. A few years later, when I watched Chris Heston pitch a no hitter against the Mets at City Field yeah. for the San Francisco Giants. It mattered a little bit less to me. I think it would have been damaging to my soul if the first no-hitter I ever saw <laughs> would have been Heston. was yeah. Heston. And there was another no-hitter in which it was the final Saturday of the regular season in 2015 where Max Scherzer pitched a no-hitter at City Field against the Mets. The game didn't mean anything. The Mets had the division wrapped up. Right. But I, it was a doubleheader. It was a day-night doubleheader. I went to the first game. I didn't go to the second game. Um, me and my wife, were we married at the time? Yeah, we just got married. We went to the second game just to get the giveaway. I told her, I said, look, the weather's crappy. They're about to be in the playoffs. We don't have to go to the game, but let's go wait online. Let's get the giveaway and go home, which was this great blanket. Got the blanket. <laughs> Max pitches a no-hitter, and she said to me, are you annoyed? I mean, you know, you just would have witnessed a no-hitter. It wouldn't have bothered you that much because the Mets had already won the division, and Max Scherzer's an all-time great. You know, Max Scherzer's going to go to the Hall of Fame. It would yeah. be kind of cool to have witnessed it. And again, because I saw Johan... It made it so much easier to deal with. And every time the, a Met pitcher would flirt with a no-hitter, right. if I wasn't at the game, I would get this anxiety of, I have to be there. Right. How am I not there? Yeah. I don't have that anymore. And so getting a witness, Johan, is ease that tension that I would always have of, I can't miss the first Mets no-hitter. So thank you, Johan Santana, for easing that yep. kind of tension that I would have had. Yeah. No, and listen, I remember... I remember when he got signed, you know, I think uh, Mike and Chris did the show live from his, from the press conference. It was a big deal when Santana, Santana came here. I mean, he was, he was the best pitcher in baseball with the Twins. And you know what? Obviously, it didn't turn out. And he never, you know, he did have uh, a couple of big starts uh, down the stretch yes. as the team was collapsing oh, in, in, in 08. Yep. Um, I remember doing a piece for Summers with, uh, you know, I Need a Hero, that terrible song. I need a hero. <laughs> and I have all said that back when I was doing pieces for Steve Summers. So, I mean, he was he was good for the Mets, never, uh, you know, amounted to anything. But obviously that no hitter is that right there for everything you just said. 
the tension it's relieved from Evan Roberts was worth it. Yes, no doubt. Two moments from Santana, because this would be his final year as a Met, the no-hitter, and what you mentioned, three days rest with a torn meniscus, yep. the second to last day of the year in 08. The problem yep. is they didn't win the following game. I mean, Right, that's the problem. We always talk about history is written by the winners. If the Mets win that following day, first of all, Beltron's a legend because he had a yep. big home run in that game. Yep. And B, Santana's legend as a Met probably grows. But as great as that accomplishment was by Johan Santana, about a week and a half later, the Mets were in Tampa Bay. Joe, Ernie, and I made a trip. That was one of our midday show road trips. And I got to tell you, on Wednesday, June 13th, the almost no-hitter by R.A. Dickey right. may have been the best pitching performance I had ever seen to that moment. Yeah. He was so freaking dominant. And what happened was, in the fr- it was early in the game. It right, may have right. been the first inning. Yeah. There was a little chopper to third base, and David Wright made a bad play, and they ruled it a hit. They called it a hit. At the time, I thought it could have gone either way. Didn't think much of it. And Dickey would not allow another hit the rest of the day. In fact, David made another error in the ninth inning, which allowed Tampa Bay to score an unearned run. There were a couple of pass balls late. So Dickey came within an out of a shutout, didn't get it. Right. But it was an unearned run. He ended up pitching nine innings, gave up one hit. Should have maybe not been a hit. I get that. One run unearned. I think he struck out 12 or 13 guys. He was real freaking ridiculous that day. Yeah, yeah. And the Mets actually petitioned the league to change the right error into uh, the right hit into yeah. an error. And you're 100% right. I remember Joe and I screaming about it, saying, look, yeah. Dickey was great. Was his performance better than Johan's no-hitter? Absolutely. Yeah. He was incredibly dominant. But that is not a real no-hitter. You no. can't, because like you said, you nailed it, you can't change the pressure. He would have had pressure of, I'm about to pitch a no-hitter, I'm about to pitch a no-hitter, and you eliminate that if after the fact you say, oh, wait, that's an error. Can't do it. Cannot. And luckily, luckily baseball didn't overturn it because that would have been a disgrace. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I I completely agree. Moving forward, too, once you make that call a hit, that's – it's. And that no hit, you can't change it and then give him a no hitter. I, I, you can't. Can't do it's it. Not, it the, the pressure is completely relieved. He doesn't have. He, there's nothing going through his mind. That, you know, there's no one in the entire dugout leaving him alone. All the nonsense that goes with the no hitter, all of it goes out the window once you give up that hit. So yeah, I agree. And that, and the same thing with the Beltron. I mean, that's a no hitter. Anyone who says difference, just you know, sour grapes and trying to stick it to a Met fan. It's a no hitter. By the way, R.A. Dickey's next start after he made that start against Tampa Bay, I was also at. It was at City Field against the Orioles. Listen right. to this pitching line: nine innings, one hit, zero runs, thirteen yeah. strikeouts, two walks. So he was. Yeah, he, listen. Oh my it was, God! It was an unbelievable year. And what I remember from R.A. Dickey was just when he breaks onto the scene, uh, and then just the. The um, the miles per hour on the cur- the knuckleball. I don't ever remember seeing anything like it. I don't ever remember seeing you know knuckleballs being thrown that hard. Not that it was you know ninety miles an hour, but still, most of the time you you think of the Tim Wakefield knuckleball that you know takes an hour and a half to get to the plate, and he's up there and he's you know, and I just remember how fast he moved for a knuckleball pitcher. I mean, he he would get the ball and he would be ready to go, and the ball would come in at eighty you know eighty three miles an hour, whatever he was throwing it, and. I thought, and I was, you know, I really thought that he had revolutionized the knuckleball pitcher and that his career would continue on that path for a long time because everyone knows knuckleball is you throw, you throw it, you know, Phil Negro well, pitched for 100 years. So 
obviously he wins the National League Cy Young. He yeah. wins 20 games. He yeah. ended up, you know, deserving all of that. I thought it was close between him and Clayton Kershaw that year, but he led the league in innings. He led the league in strikeouts for a knuckleballer, which is incredible. Incredible. He had those remarkable starts. He completed five games. It was an all-world year by R.A. Dickey at the age of 37 years old. And mm-hmm. while I sort of agree what you said, that I did not think R.A. Dickey was just going to collapse, that this was a complete fluke, because Dickey had a very good year the year before, and he had a very good year the year before that. So now we're talking about three straight years in which he goes out, makes just about every start, pitches real well, hell of an athlete, was a gold glove caliber pitcher. Um, I don't think he ever won, or actually did win a gold glove, now that I'm looking back at it. He actually won a gold glove the following year of all times in Toronto. There was not a doubt in my mind that the New York Mets had to trade R.A. Dickey. Oh, I completely agree. It, It was just... Yes, he's great. Yes, he's lovable. Yes, this was an amazing year. But as you notice, we didn't talk much about the fact the Mets went 74 and 88. Right. Because that's what the Mets were. They were in the midst of this transition in the Sandy Alderson era, and there was no way at 37 years old, even though I thought he would be a productive pitcher the next Mm -hmm. couple of years, I thought that what you could potentially get for him at this moment was something you had to take advantage of. And to Sandy Alderson's credit, that's exactly what he did. And I remember at the time... There wasn't that much controversy about it. I think most Met fans got it. They understood it, yeah. that they needed to cash out on R.A. Dickey at that moment. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It was the time to move on, and you, you knew the package you could get coming off the Cy Young. Uh, you know, it was the right move. I, I don't even know. Like you said, I don't think there was much debate on it because I think everyone understood. As much as he was beloved and as much as he was, you know, look like your uncle and, you know, which I think, you know, fans tend to always, you know, love the guy who looks like he's just, you know, playing in the backyard and he's one of the best players in the league. Uh, What they, you know, and then, you know, it's funny because, and you always mention this about what a certain uh, CBS sportsman had had to say about, (laughs) about Noah Syndergaard as being, you know, the throw in on the deal, but you knew, they were going to get big prospects. You knew this organization needed more than just R.A. Dickey. So, yeah, I, th- I think everyone understood that it was the right move in selling high on him. And, and I got to defend R.A. Dickey because he goes to the Toronto Blue Jays for this yeah. huge return. Yeah. He was not a bad Blue Jay. In fact, if I'm trading for R.A. Dickey and I'm being realistic about this at 38 years old, what he yeah. ended up giving me over the next four years, yeah. four years at the age of 38, you had to take. He made all 34 starts in 2013 and threw 224 innings, won 14 games, had a 4-2 ERA. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it was a sparkling ERA. No. But he went out there and made every start. The following year, he dropped the ERA down to 3.71. Again, made all 34 starts, threw 215 innings. The following year, a 3.9 ERA, made all 33 starts, 214 innings. And then the year after that, a little bit of a drop-off, made 29 starts, 170 innings a 4-4-6 ERA before he wrapped up his career in Atlanta. Here's the point. The guy went to Toronto and was an innings eater. Mm-hmm. If you expected him to go there and win another Cy Young, I think that was unrealistic. But what you got if you're the Toronto Blue Jays, and by the way, the Blue Jays had some success yeah. in 2014 and two, or 2015 and 2016. Yeah. Like, you know, think about it. They, they were doing okay. I mean, they oh. advanced. They were in the American League Championship Series, obviously, in 2015. Yep. And Dickey made a couple of starts. So I get it. Syndergaard, Darno, who never really panned out. No. 
but this was not not this... for the Mets at least. <laughs> right. We'll see, we'll see what he does in Atlanta now. <laughs> That's true. Darno could still become a superstar. Oh boy, how great would that be? Oh yeah, it'd be fantastic. How great. Would but you know what? Even w- whatever Darno becomes, and I don't think he's going to be a star. I think he's no. A, I, I agree with you. He's a useful major leaguer. Yeah. The fact that they got Syndergaard, despite the frustrations that we may have about him, yeah. they got that for a 37-year-old knuckleballer. And yeah, that's no, why that a, was a deal that Sandy yeah. had to make. No, absolutely. And it was and it was a good trade. And he did a good job with it. No, no doubt and, about it. No doubt about it. And Syndergaard, you know, although never really, I mean, has a lot to do. I would argue one of the one of the more key ingredients to the 2015 Mets run, him him getting him turning into what he became that quickly and hitting the scene that quickly, I think it gave the Mets a lot of confidence in the team with his ability to, when him coming on the scene and pitching as well as he did in 2015, I think it led to them having the confidence to go out and make a trade for Cespedes and go out and make a trade to bolster that team because they felt like they had a legitimate chance with him becoming what he became in that year. Ultimately, still hasn't really hit the heights you had hoped, but still, I mean, to have this kind of caliber pitcher under, you know, the rookie contract and the, the money you're paying him for R.A. Dickey, it's a, you know, whatever Darno became, it, it was worth it. No question about it. So that season really was defined 2012, not by the record because the record sucked, but it was right. defined by Dickey yep. and Santana for numerous reasons. Now let's get back to 2013 for the Yankees, the year in which things started to become very, very mediocre. And here's to put in perspective how really bad the 2013 Yankee team was. Yeah. Here are the guys who played the most games at each of these positions. And I think this is the best way to describe anybody that needs a memory of what the 2013 Yankees were like. And they won 85 games. Yeah. The guy who caught the most games for the New York Yankees, Chris Stewart. Yeah. The guy who played the most games at first base, Lyle Overbay. Yeah. Obviously, Cano at second. No problem there. Yeah. The shortstop was mostly Eduardo Nunez. Oof. The third baseman was Jason Nix. The left fielder was Vernon Wells. Center fielder, Brett Gardner. Right fielder, Ichiro Suzuki. The DH was Travis Hafner. Curtis Granderson missed a big chunk of this season. They brought back Alfonso Soriano. A-Rod missed a big chunk of the year. Mark Reynolds played a bunch of games. Kevin Euclid was a guy they expected a lot from. Yeah, he got hurt. Yep. Uh, That was the Yankees. And outside of Robinson Cano, outside of Cano, the offensive numbers for all of those guys absolutely sucked. Yep. This was a dreadful offensive team. Dreadful. Their, their pitching wasn't bad. Hiroki Kuroda was in the midst of uh, you know, authoring yeah. a, a pretty solid Yankee career. For, yeah, forgotten about, but he he was the he was the shining uh, you know beacon on that team. I no mean, doubt. He, really, he was great for the Yankees, Kuroda. He was very, very good. Andy yeah. Pettit had a, a decent a decent final season. I think yeah. that was his final season. No, because he kept coming back. Yeah, that was. Yeah, he re- he retired with uh, Mariano. With Mariano. So I, what we have to think about with this Yankee team in 2013 is just how dreadful that offense was. Yeah. I mean, oh my God. No, I, some of those names. It's a, um, amazing, amazing. Travis Hafner was terrible. Vernon Wells was terrible. Um, you know, Chris Stewart, your catcher. I mean, you know, the, the Yankees have had a nice little run of backup catchers here, but that's what Chris Stewart was. You know, they, Cervelli and Stewart went on to, you know, play somewhere else, and obviously Austin Romine, but Stewart's not your everyday catcher. This offense, they scored, a hun- they scored 650 runs. Mm. 
They, 650 runs. They scored four runs per game, which sounds ridiculous, and they hit the second fewest home runs in the American League. The only team with fewer home runs that year were the Kansas City Royals, who were about to become pretty good, but they weren't there right. yet. Yeah. So this was, especially in this era, just an absolutely dreadful Yankee offensive team. And yeah. I got to tell you, man, the more you go through the numbers of this roster, yeah. how did they even win 85 I, games? I know. It's amazing. That's amazing. I, like I said before, to me, this is when you look back at Joe Girardi's career and you have all these Yankee fans and we, you, you certainly take calls on them. I'm in the overnight take calls because I talk a lot of Yankees. I'm a Yankee fan. And everyone wants to tell you that Joe Girardi should have been fired. And, you know, it's about winning championships with the Yankees. And it's an absolute embarrassment if George was still around. All the same nonsense you hear. This guy won 85 games with this team. And honestly, they had no they should have won 75. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's, that's how bad they were. Yeah, I think when you and, look- I, and and when you, I just remember the the feeling watching the 2013 Yankees. Obviously, Jeter injured for the entire year. You know, came back for a brief minute, got hurt again. I think this is the year Teixeira had the the wrist injury that he hurt himself in uh, in the spring training and never really came back from. I mean, this team was just dreadful. They were. Now, the, the highlights of the season, Mariano Rivera did come back. He's yep. 43 years old. Yep. Had just an excellent final season where I'm sure Yankee fans were thinking, why retire? Yeah. I mean, who cares how old you are? You could keep going. He had his final all-star game, which occurred at City Field, yep. which was, you know, I guess it's special because it's in New York. You know, yep. It's kind of a big deal. And I think what most Yankee fans remember about that season was Mariano Rivera and his farewell tour, especially when Jeter and Pettit come out to take him out of the game at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, no, it was, it was a great moment. It was. Did you uh, cry? No, I didn't cry. You know, you have the you have the whole year to say goodbye. That's that's, you know, part of it now. A lot of, you know, Jeter did it. Mariano did it where you knew they announced prior that it was going to be the end. And I had gotten resigned to the fact I knew it was coming to an end. He was still pitching great. It, it wasn't like he was a shell of himself. So I, I didn't get so upset. He was leaving on his terms. He was the greatest reliever of all time. Uh, you know, the, the team was in a state like we just talked about where I, I, I wasn't sure of the future. I, I, I knew David Robertson was a good reliever. And as much as, you know, he meant to me, Mariano Rivera meant to me and everything that, you know, we talk about, how they were going to not be the Yankees anymore without him. It was impossible to imagine it. I had so many great memories of the guy and he'll always have a place in my heart. But I got to tell you, I just, I was, I was happy for him. I remember feeling like happy for him that he had this moment, that it was at Yankee stadium, that he was there for his teammates. Uh, I don't get too emotional with stuff like this. So I know I don't remember crying. I just remember being really happy and thankful because, you know, we got to witness and, you know, if you really do sit down and think about it, how lucky us Yankee fans are, you know, I'm 35 years old, how lucky we are to see the run that we saw and to see the great player, Mariano Rivera. And, and obviously now it's been, uh, you know, culminated with being the first player with a hundred percent of the vote to get into the hall of fame. Well-deserved. So, I mean, it was a great moment. I loved watching him cry into Andy Pettit's shoulder. I remember that moment just thinking, I, I totally understood that he just lost it. I've had those moments too. I think we've all had it where it starts with just like a little bit of like a sentimental and then before you know it, you're uncontrollably crying. Right. Um, so I like, I, it was just, it was a great moment. But no, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't ever remember feeling like just that sad about it. I, I was more, I was more at peace with it and happy with right. it. Right. 
Eh, look, the guy's 43 years old. Yeah, that's it too. You know, it wasn't, I, I would feel like to me, if I were a Met fan, watching David Wright's last game would bring me to tears more yeah. than Mariano what Rivera been? because of what could have been Absolutely. and how this guy struggled. I, I mean, Mariano did have that one year of the injury and he battled to get back, but then he was terrific again. I mean, it's not like he got to the point where they just threw him out there like David Wright just to have him have a moment. Uh, you know, Mariano was at the end, and I was at peace with it. It does make me wonder what, and we'll, we'll never get the answer, if he yeah. just wanted to keep pitching, how good he could have been it until is when. It is amazing. And he's obviously come up now with the, the Astros scandal and, uh, scandal and, you know, throwing one pitch. It's remarkable. He yeah. threw one pitch. Yeah. You know, everyone knew what was coming. I mean, so when you do have that one pitch and it's literally just based on late movement, right. he was still throwing 92, 93 miles an hour at the end of his career. I... I mean, it's, there's no doubt that you can't say he wouldn't have been able to do it at least one more year. So, I mean, I agree. Who knows how long he could have done the, it? He was, he, was, he, was a, he was a savant. In the midst of this, you know, very mediocre Yankee season was A-Rod. And where were we in A-Rod's scandal? Where were we in the A-Rod's story? It's always a question because I'm sure right. it all runs together. Well, here's where we were. A-Rod was hurt. A-Rod was injured, and it started to come out that Alex Rodriguez was involved in the biogenesis scandal. Right. That was, start, that was starting to come out. Okay. And so Alex Rodriguez kind of ignored it. Major League Baseball announced that they were going to suspend him for the remainder of the 13th season and into the 14th season. Yep. A-Rod was appealing it. A-Rod was also fighting with the Yankees over, I think, the hip surgery that he had with where A-Rod was accusing the Yankee doctors of not right. handling him well. Yep. So the Yankee-A-Rod relationship started to get very, very ugly. But A-Rod did come back. It's sort of forgotten about. He came back in August, was very mediocre to not yep. productive. Yep. And that was also the year in which Ryan Dempster threw a baseball at him, hit him right. on purpose. Right. There were warnings issued. Yeah. Uh, Dempster, I think, was suspended. Yep. That whole thing. Yep. But it was a very nondescript 44 games that he played in 2013. He looked done. He hit 244. Yep. And what we would later find out is that he was going to be suspended. And A-Rod yep. had his famous meeting with Rob Manfred. He storms out. He comes into your studio with That's Mike right. Francesa. Nice. And yep. he's, they're a bunch of liars. Oh know, he's lying to Mike. Yep. So this was the midst of A-Rod. And it's amazing to think back that six years later, he'd become Mr. Popular. I know. But A-Rod was fighting with everybody, including the Yankees. And I think... I think that most of us thought that as this was going on, we're never going to see him again. Yeah. Like, there's no way A-Rod's no. ever going to be able to play again. Right. And, and meanwhile, as we would later find out, he would. But he did play a little bit in 2013. He would not play in 2014. No. And I remember, obviously, I remember the day he came in here. Uh, I remember not, you know... We, we didn't want to tell the Yes Network because we didn't want the Yankees to know about it. I just remember, like, so it was, uh, we were still on, Mike was still on Yes at that point. Right. And I remember him walking in here and the just absolute, sh the show and spectacle, spectacle it became. And as a Yankee fan who was an A-Rod guy, you know, I, I, I never got too down on him. I, I thought, you know, steroids were so prevalent in the sport that to get on one player just because he's high profile, it's not my style. And, I won and once everyone hates someone, uh, I've always been in that corner of the guy who's hated and it, the him and Jeter stuff. So I've kind of always been an A-Rod guy, but we all knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. And for him to come in here and, you know, make a fool of himself, let's be honest, you know, and lie. And we all know he's lying. And I remember when he left, the entire newsroom was just packed with people watching him leave. Just the, the it, it, there was standing room only in the newsroom, the entire sales department, everybody, 
And nobody stopped him and asked him for an autograph or anything. They just wanted to see him. <laughs> it was like such a story. And it was like, you know, it was like breaking news. It's happening in the studio. And I remember the funny thing, and this is just a side story. I don't know if I think we, me and Monzo have said this on the podcast. Or, right. Um, but uh, he leaves and the place is just jam-packed, like I just said. And uh, one of the salespeople come into the studio and is chatting it up with us about it and asking us all questions. And they look into the, into the studio and they see there's a, a bottle of water where A-Rod was sitting. And they said, was that the water A-Rod was drinking? <laughs> and we said, yes. And then they said, do you think I could go in there and take it? And I said, you, you want to take the water bottle? And they're like, yeah. Like, all right, go for it. And so someone, I, I don't know if they framed it or, you know, have it prominently in their house, <laughs> but the water bottle that was given to Alex Rodriguez that day was wow. taken as a souvenir. Wow. But, um, yeah. Uh, but Did uh, Mike ever admit off air to you, boy, this guy's a phony, this guy's lying? No, no. Um, I don't know if you remember, but Mike's stance, and I think it's a fair one, is that Alex Rodriguez is one player and is one person. And the way Major League Baseball went about trying to get him was more the story Mike was interested in. And it was more about, you know, it's one thing if A-Rod is going to do dirty business and pay people under the table, but you're a major league baseball and you're buying stolen evidence at a Denny's with a bag full of cash. What the hell is going on? Like that was kind of the take. And I don't ever remember, you know, obviously now we all know he was lying, but I don't ever remember Mike feeling like he came in and lied to him. Uh, but it was a crazy day and obviously a crazy story. And there was a, there's a Netflix documentary on it. I don't know if you ever saw it um, with the whole, the, the guy, you know, who stole the evidence and was mad about, you know, got not getting paid for like $1,500 about doing some advertising for him. It's a wacky story about how this, how right. this thing broke. Um, but yeah, no, I, re I remember that. I remember the suspension. I remember him coming back. Uh, and then I remember obviously him getting suspended for the year after the number was like some arbitrary number. Wasn't it like it was like 200 and some 235 games right. or some weird number. You're like, where the hell did you come up with that? <laughs> and then, but to me, the one thing that I always look back on it and that I'm upset with Alex about more than lying to Mike, because you know, he was lying to everybody, but you knew that he was the one who was sneaking out some of the names that oh, yeah. ended up, you know, when, when, um, uh, what's his name? The catcher, uh, San Francisco Savelli gets popped and you know, the names are leaking out about other guys who are on this and you just, you know what he, he's doing anything, anything to get back and to lower the That's suspension why. that, you know, you just, it's almost like the, the Ryan Braun thing where yeah. you just, it's one thing to be a steroid cheater. It's another to, to tear people's lives down with you, that, try, to, try to save yourself. If you look back at this moment in 2013 yeah. and he doesn't play at all in 2014, he's suspended. Right. The idea that A, he comes back, which we'll get to, and is productive, yeah. and then B, is now, you know, kind of loved. He's, he's a face in oh, baseball. absolutely. It's yeah. remarkable. It is remarkable. It's one of the, the crazier comeback stories yeah. you'll ever see. And, and you, know what it, you know what it tells you, honestly? Uh, it, it all tells you is it's about being productive because yes, he's, you know, now he's the, you know, he's on shark tank and he's doing these things, but it doesn't happen if he doesn't come back in 2015 and hit home runs. That's what it is. I, he came back in 2015 and he played well and he led the Yankees on a resurgent year that you didn't expect because they were aging and, and him and Mark Teixeira had you the, know what else these great up? years. He begged, he begged for forgiveness. Yeah. And that matters. I mean, there's a reason why Barry Bonds is still not around because Barry Bonds hasn't done that. You know, Barry yeah. Bonds is not going to go around to everybody yeah. begging for forgiveness and A-Rod, for him, it's been worth it because of yeah. what's happened to his career. But 
You know, at that moment in 2013 when he was coming back, nobody wanted to see him succeed. The Yankees no. didn't even want him to play. No, absolutely. They yeah. didn't want him to come back. No. So he's a forgotten about part of that season. Yeah. On the other side, 2013 for the Mets, and again, bad win-loss record. Same win-loss record as the year before, 74 and 88. The only difference is, and this is the first time I could say this, every pattern of every Mets season, 2010, 11, 12, was, hey, they're pretty good for a while. Hey, they're in it. Hey, they're eight games above 500. Hey, they're in a pennant race. Hey, they're not that bad. In 2013, they were bad from the beginning. They were not a good baseball team. There was never any, you know, fake out. There was never any thought that they were going to compete. But that was all forgotten because even though R.A. Dickey was gone and even Johan Santana wasn't around, Matt Harvey was around. And Matt Harvey was busting out and he was dominating. And for the second straight year, we were witnessing greatness on the mound every five days. We were witnessing excitement on the mound every five days. And, you know, Met Games, and I could say this firsthand experiencing it, became an event when Matt Harvey was pitching. Yeah. It was an event. You know, the the Harvey's better chant against the Nationals in April when he pitched a great game against, I think, Steven, I think he was facing Steven Strasburg, which makes sense for all the chants. I think of the performance against the White Sox. He pitched nine innings, one hit, zero runs, 12 strikeouts, zero walks. That was one of the, I think he faced Jose Quintana that night. I'd have to double check, but he was utterly brilliant in that performance. And it went on and on. I mean, the guy was great every five days. And then he had this performance in August in which he faced the Detroit Tigers and he wasn't great. He was very hittable that day. Wasn't striking guys out. It was just a very, you know, blood day. And I had to miss that game. It was a Saturday afternoon game and he was actually facing Max Scherzer. So it was built up as this, this great pitching matchup. Matt Harvey against Max Scherzer. Mets had a lot of opportunities against Max. They couldn't come through with a big hit. Matt Harvey was just, he was just hittable. It wasn't mm-hmm. bad, but he was, he was just hittable. Right. And little did we know that that was it. Yeah. We came out a couple of days later that he needed Tommy John surgery, and it was an absolutely devastating blow. Not for this season. We knew they were going nowhere, but you started to have the optimism. You heard about Harvey. You had heard about Noah Syndergaard, who they had gotten a year earlier in the R.A. Dickey trade. Yep. You knew about Zach Wheeler, who at the time was you know, starting to show you, hey, this guy can be pretty good. And so you felt for the first time like, okay, there's some hope with this franchise. Right. And for Matt Harvey to yeah. need Tommy John surgery was a kick in the you-know-what. Yeah, devastating. Devastating. And I remember the big deal he was and you know, the All-Star game at, at City Field and just the electric. I mean, he was... I, I think you could argue that, you know, you know, DeGrom last year obviously was just brilliant, but that first half of Matt Harvey that year was as good and as electric as, you know, going back to, you know, Doc 85. I mean, that's how, I mean, he was just so good and such the talk of the town. I mean, he was the, you know, it's also, you know, like we just talked about with the Yankees, they're terrible. I mean, Harvey was the talk of the baseball town here in New York. He was. He was. And I, and I don't know if, you know, looking at what Jake has been able to accomplish the last two years, if pound for pound, he can match that. It's actually not that far off, mm-hmm. at least in a very small sample size, because yeah. Oh, yeah. over a period of time, I think is where Jake separates from everybody else oh, that he no. was able to to pitch at a sub two ERA level yeah, for an no, entire season. Yeah, no question. But what Matt did that's different, because I always bemoan a little bit, 
You know, there's there isn't that energy at City Field when Jake pitches like there, there was from no, Matt Harvey. Not, there, that was Harvey Day. It there's, was Harvey there, Day. There is no Degrom Day. And, there isn't. There, unfortunately. And, and I've tried to figure out why. And I think yeah, there's I there's a couple of reasons. Number one, Harvey, you know, had that big personality. He's the Dark Knight. He's the superhero. Right. But also, we were just so desperately yeah. looking for a hero. Yeah. You know, the Mets have been bad for years. Yeah. At this point, and so and the team was bad. I mean, the team was going out and losing 88 games. They were not a good team. And I think we were looking for that sign of life for this franchise to turn around. He did start the All-Star game at City Field, like you mentioned. He probably didn't necessarily need to be the guy. Maybe it deserved to be Clayton Kershaw, but whatever. The game is at City Field. You're going to start Matt Harvey. He drilled Robinson Cano. Remember that in the first inning? I do. I do remember that in the first <laughs> Yankee, inning. Yankee fans were pretty pissed oh off about God. that. Yeah, I do remember they that. They thought it was on purpose. Yeah. But unfortunately, when I think of Matt's 2013, I think of the injury. And I think of the devastation that it caused all of us yeah. where we weren't angry at anybody. I mean, who's there to be angry about? No, of course. It was more, boy, we're the Mets. You know, yeah. this, is, this is who we are. We are not allowed to have good things. We have this good thing. <laughs> we have this incredible run. Right. And, of course, it has to be taken away from us. Yeah. No, I, I can understand that. I, I remember feeling for Matt Harvey and for the Mets. I really do. I'm not one of these guys. I, we've talked about this. I am not a Met hater. I'm not. I, I don't. As, and I know. And again, I, I mentioned like coming off as, uh, you know, obnoxious or whatever. But like the Mets have never caused me an ounce of pain. I, I hate teams that cause me pain. I don't care. We share a city. I don't care if they win a parade. I have to deal with Met fans. I don't care. I, I root for the Mets when they're not playing the Yankees. And I was into Matt Harvey. I was into Matt Harvey and I was in, I, I, you know, I, I, it's funny to look back now and kind of, you know, laugh at a Met fan occasionally here and there about what Harvey <laughs> day became. I'll be right. honest with you. Of course. But for the most part, like I remember feeling, you know, bad about it too. And especially, you know, this is what we do. And, you know, I'm involved with the Mets on a daily basis. And I, I, you know, if I'm forced to watch the Met games, I might as well see good baseball. So like I was all about Matt Harvey and it was a, it is, it's a devast, it was a devastating injury. I remember just really feeling sick for Harvey and for the Met fans, because the he looked like he was on his way to being one of the best pitchers in baseball. Yep. No, you're right about that. Right, let's go to 2014. The New York Yankees actually go out and have a very productive, what we think is a productive offseason. They sign Brian McCann, who's yep. 30 years old. He's not yep. 35. They sign Carlos Beltran, who is 37 years old. Yep. But the big one is that they decided to let Robinson Cano walk, and yes. in return... They signed Jacoby Ellsbury to a monstrous, monstrous contract. They yep. also brought in Masahiro Tanaka. So a very significant offseason for the Yankees when you yes. look at the activity that they had. McCann, mm -hmm. Beltron, Ellsbury, Kanoa's out. They signed Brian Roberts and Kelly Johnson. And, yep. you know, we mentioned A-Rod is not going to be a factor this season. Yep. They uh, bring back Kuroda who I think was only signed a one-year deal, but they bring back yes. where they signed Tanaka, who is very highly prized in free agency. I remember the Cano controversy during the offseason, and I was big on pay the guy and bring him back. Yep. I get that the Mariners offered him an absurd amount of money, and I yep. get that that contract's going to look bad at the end, which we're obviously witnessing firsthand now. Yes. But he's your guy. And he's really productive. And he yep. goes out and he plays 160 games every single day. Yep. And who knows? Maybe the fact that he doesn't hustle all the time is why he plays 160 games every day. Yep. And 
I knew that if they were going to let him go, don't double down on stupid. When the Mets let Daryl Strawberry go, they signed Vince Coleman as a way to say, see, we did something. Yep. When the Mets lost Mike Hampton, they went out and signed Kevin Apier to say, see, we did something. The yep. Yankees didn't need to do that. So, number one, I would have re-signed Cano despite the absurd contract they ended up signing. And number two, you can't go out and sign Jacoby Ellsbury, who really only had one great year in his career. Yeah, I... I completely agree, and I was on the sign. I wanted Cano back badly. I didn't care. Uh, I, to me, they're still they're the Yankees. Go pay the guy. You're talking about a guy who's arguably on pace to be the greatest hitting second baseman of all time. That's I mean uh, that's how good, he's he's Joe Morgan, and you're gonna let and you're gonna let him go and bring in Ellsbury. I was furious. I hated it. Uh, I you know I, I I had a sense it was gonna happen. And I, I understand you were starting to hear the Yankees don't want to sign 10-year contracts and the Yankees don't want to do this and don't want to do that. Uh, the guy was clearly their best player. We watched him come up in 2005 and become just one of the more steady, you know, hitters in the lineup, Get you know, f- going from murderer's row plus Cano to him being the best player on the team. Uh, he's tremendous defensively as well. They're the New York Yankees. I hated not bringing him back. I didn't. I, I completely I'm with you that it was a reactionary signing to get Ellsbury. Uh, I didn't love the signing. I wanted Cano. So if you ask me, was I happy about it? I wasn't. I didn't expect it, you know, nor did anyone, for it to be the disaster it became. I didn't like it. I didn't hate it as much as, you know, now it's easy to look back and say I hated it. I was more of the, t- the elk of why the hell isn't this player on the Yankees? Mm. I, I couldn't understand. I, I just... They're still the Yankees, and what we see, even with the Ellsbury contract and and all the you know the Pavanos, although that you know at that time the money still wasn't you know where it is now. But if there's one thing the Yankees can do, it's eat bad contracts. It's right. the one benefit that the Yankees have above everybody else is that if things go wrong and you have to just eat a salary, you can do it. Yeah. So the idea that you know you're worried about the back end of a contract for a player who's on a Hall of Fame trajectory in your uniform. Who's just you know all right maybe not beloved by the fan base because of what you were talking about you know not the the hustle player that you know a David you know an uh, Erstad is or whoever you want, Eckstein whoever you want to talk about with you know like the the classic you know player that the fans love but this is a guy who hits thirty home runs and plays second well, base and you know what else if they had re-signed Cano even to the absurd contract and I think we all agree yeah it was absurd that's what the Mariners yeah. had to do to convince him to go there the Mariners yeah. had nothing that season right. I think Yankee fans would have viewed him very differently if he ended up spending his entire career with this team. First of all, I think his production, which as it was not bad in Seattle. No, like the, ho- the, f- the home runs would have been better in the that, year. You nailed it. His no first year in Seattle, he played just about every game. What else is new? Yeah. He only had 14 home runs, but he had 314 at an 836 OPS. Yeah. So it's not as if he wasn't productive that year. So I think the view on Cano would have been different yep. if they kept him. And the back end of his contract look, he would have DH'd a little bit. I yeah. just don't think it would have looked nearly as bad. No. The steroid stuff... Yeah, I mean, I think you can't predict that. You but. can't predict it. And I think we, we look past it now. I don't think yeah. a lot of people care that much no. about it. No, I agree. And if you look at 2014, the Yankees won 84 games that year. Yep. The wild card spot, the second one was 88 wins. You're telling me if they have Cano instead of Ellsbury, they don't win four more games? They're yep. probably in the playoffs. They probably are. And who knows, if, if you recall, the second wild card team, or actually the first wild card team that year, was the Kansas City Royals. They yep. got to the seventh game of the World Series. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? So, no, of course. I don't know. I mean, who knows? Maybe the Yankees win right. 89 games and they're the Are team. Are you telling me I'd have another world championship? No, you just would have lost a brutal seventh game at home. <laughs> right. Yeah. Bumgarner would have shoved it up your derriere. That's what I mean. But it was... It's, it's a weird time because the Yankees are going out and they're spending. Like, you can't say they weren't spending. Look at the guys they added. They added Beltron. They added McCann. But they were a very pedestrian offensive team. Like, I looked back at their numbers. They averaged, and granted, keep it in perspective that in 2014, offense is way down compared to where it is now. The Yankees were averaging less than four runs per game. Yeah. I mean, think about that. No. But the other big thing from that season was Masahiro Tanaka. That Tanaka came over, and and that was the best Tanaka we had ever seen. He didn't pitch the whole year. He had an injury, an injury that I think we still talk about all these years later, that he he may need Tommy John surgery but hasn't had it. I think that actually started his rookie year. But when he pitched, he was the best Tanaka we've seen in the regular season in his career that first year. No, it was was brilliant before the injury. Brilliant. Yeah. and I remember the same thing, you know, I was you're clamoring for the signing almost the way Cole is now. He was, you know, bu- you know, as high hyped as, uh, you know, any J- player coming from Japan at that point that I could remember. Uh, you know, he was he was, you know, throwing 97 miles an hour with a split finger fastball that drops off the table and it was go get him. I, I remember being very uh, forceful that I wanted Kano and Tanaka. That's what I wanted in that offseason. Uh, they went out and got him, and he comes here, and he was just filthy to start the year. Filthy. Yep. I, I, you know, I, I say these things, and I hope I'm not wrong when I say them, but I, I remember early on a game. I want to say it was in Wrigley Field against the Cubs, where I just thought he was absolutely dominant in a big spot against the Cubs, and well, I mean, you know, against a good team. I think they were good back then. I don't remember, but. Uh, I just remember a couple of starts where I was like, wow, this guy is filthy and he means business. Right. That's the other thing about Tanaka. If you watch his, his mannerisms and just him on the mound and when he's dealing, he just looks like he means business. He's not messing around. And I, I was very pleased in the injury, obviously. And it led to the talk. And you know what? I remember also with the injury, just get the surgery done. I remember feeling that way. I know a lot of Yankee fans felt that way. Look, why why mess around with a tear in, in in your elbow? Get the surgery, miss a year and a half. It's the first year of your contract. Come back and you know be fine after it. People come back from Tommy John. You know, no no problem whatsoever. And obviously that would have been a mistake because every year it's it's all you know. He's an elbow in. You know, he's one pitch away from ruining his elbow. And you know what? He's been able to stay healthy yeah. this entire time. Crazy, right? So it is crazy. Because, but I definitely remember thinking, you know, just go have the surgery. What, what are you messing around for? But you know, I understand these guys don't want to get cut. And Tanaka is a number one example of why you don't rush to have yeah. surgery. Adam Wainwright, Masahiro Tanaka, they both did it. And it yep. was another one of those years where the Pythagorean win loss record said yeah. that the Yankees should have been bad. They should yeah. have been a 77 win team. They won yep. 84 games. So yeah. it was another one of those years where the number of wins is low for Yankee standards. But when you right. look at the talent, yep. you'd have to say, wow, they actually right. should have been worse. No, absolutely. And I, you know, I hate to, I, I think I've said it already, but Yankee fans forget this. Yankee fans look and say, Hey, they're the New York Yankees. 84 wins is unacceptable. And I'm not saying you're wrong, but when you, I mean, with what they put on the field, I mean, Girardi. I just Girardi did a great job. the The team did a a great job winning eighty four games. And the other thing about this offseason that I don't want to just get lost because to me, when I think of this season, and the biggest surprises to me is the Derek Jeter announcement on Facebook that he's gonna. This will be his last season. Uh, and I just remember being shocked, absolutely floored, because I, I never, I thought Jeter would be the guy 
that you had to rip the uniform off of. Right. And I thought there would be a very distinct possibility, especially, you know, off his last contract and hearing the rumors that Cashman played hardball with him and hearing the fact that, you know, uh, you know, uh, Tulowitzki's at, you know, you know, is someone the Yankees like better and all the things you were hearing from that last contract, Jeter's unhappiness with Cashman. I thought there was a very good chance that Derek Jeter was going to end his career on another. You team. know, Derek Jeter is a smart guy. Yeah, he, he is a smart guy. He's a prideful guy. He's a confident guy, probably an arrogant guy, too. But yeah. I think Derek Jeter realized when he came back from that injury and he played a little bit in 2013, like you mentioned, I think he yeah. got re-injured again. But in 2014, you talk about the climb. Yeah. I mean, this oh, was God. Yeah. this was significant. You know, we talked yeah. about how after 2009 he started to decline. Right. Sure, but he was still okay. He was really, really bad in 2014. Really His bad. batting average was way down. Yep. His OPS was terrible. He just terrible. wasn't. And by the way, he was 40 years old, and yeah. he was coming off a significant injury. I'm not saying yeah. this to rip him. No, of course. I think Derek got it, and I think he knew the Yankees aren't that great. They were yep. not a great team. He was a shell of his former self. He's 40 years old, and he's a smart guy. He knew that playing for another team is not a good thing, especially at this point in your career when you're not that same productive player. So I think Derek Cheater was smart. He got ahead of it. Instead of his career ending because someone else told him it needed to end, he got ahead of it, and he got a big retirement tour, which you know I'm sure he loved every second of it. And then... And I said this on the air recently, and I didn't mean it as an insult to Derek Jeter. I said his final moment at Yankee Stadium was cheesy, not because he did anything wrong, but it was so it felt so fake. Like, there's no way that Derek (laughs) Jeter forget about coming through in a big spot. Fake. It felt fake. It felt like it was because it's just remarkable. You can't imagine it being actually what happened. Yeah. How do you script? I know. (laughs) That he's going to come up with a chance. Forget that he got the game-winning hit, but even the opportunity. And if you remember, they blew the lead for him to even get that opportunity. No, David Robinson blew the lead to even get the opportunity. Which I'm sure there were callers saying the whole thing was staged. staged, (laughs) Listen, he's one of those guys. Like Just everything in life worked out for him. It's amazing. And he always came through with the big spot. And you just had a feel. I mean, you know, from... From every, you know, the the home run being the three thousandth hit, you know, f- to to everything, you know, a Rod the same th- hit, hit the three thousand hit was a home run, but he's a home run hitter. Right. I mean, to have Derek Jeter off a of, off a of price, no less, and to go five for five in that game. I mean, there's just something about the guy in the big moment. You just knew. I knew it was going to happen. One, once they did blow the lead, I was like, this is there's good. Jeter's going to get involved in the end of this game. But uh, yeah, I also thought that the injury. I remember when. Um, I thought about Derek Jeter when Andrew Luck retired because I, I, I thought it was the same thing. I think the injury, and you hear about it with Jeter. You know, Alex Rodriguez would go home at night and watch the West Coast games. Right. You know, Jeter, Jeter doesn't have that passion for baseball. Jeter has a passion for winning. And I, and I think, obviously, you don't get to where he is without a love for the game. But I honestly think that missing the entire 13th season and doing nothing but rehabbing without the compete and without the winning and doing nothing but having a sore ankle every day and just trying to get back to it really made him realize that he was done with the game. Yeah. I think that had a, I think I, that I had a lot to do with it too. And so like, um, but yeah, no, you're right. That moment is the, I, I, I wish I were in the building for that one. That's, that's one I regret not being in the building for, but 
It is it is remarkable. It the guy just, just it's just amazing it that he would get that moment. Yeah, yeah, it didn't feel real. They had a five to two lead in the ninth yeah. inning. Robertson has given up home runs to everybody. It's right. five five, and then oh look, Derek Jeter's up with a chance to win it. Yep. And I'm glad you brought up his three thousand take because that was back in 2011, and we didn't mention it during that 2011 recap. Right. Uh, five hit day yep. against David Price, yep. three thousandth hit. Yep. Uh, yeah, everything Derek Jeter did seemed magical seemed like a bad Disney movie. And that's not a knock on him. It's just right. that's what his career was like. It was just so magical. And I guess if it was really magical, it would have ended with them winning a world championship or something right, like that. Right, right, right. But nevertheless. It, it, is, it is sad to, to know that both, that all three of them, Andy Pettit, Mariano Rivera, and Derek Jeter, all ended without, a, without going to the postseason their final year. Yeah, and, and also they both, to the point you just made about Jeter realizing after the injury, both Rivera and Jeter came back after a big injury late in their career yeah. to at least end things on their terms. Right. And so I thought that was also Mariano a little bit more successfully, but sure. Yeah. And I mean, and it's, sure. and, and you know, they were called uh, at the time. I mean, a lot of fans wanted Jeter hit ninth. Why, how you can, how are you going to continue to hit Jeter second? Yeah. How are you going to continue to Jeter lead off yeah. wherever he was? I mean, so at the end, it was the end. It was. It, it, was it really time. was the end. It was. But time. I just always thought that Jeter wouldn't recognize the time. Yep. I thought he was that player that wouldn't recognize it. So I have to admit that that Facebook message at the beginning of the year announcing his retirement completely stunned me. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. And what's funny is the Yankees. You know, we mentioned that eighty-four win season. They were sort of independent race. Yeah. I felt so good about the 2014 New York Mets. And I think I was prophetic in it because of what ended up happening the following year. I, I remember sitting there in September saying to my now wife, this team's about to turn. And she, you know, she hadn't known me that long at the time. And she said, usually not that confident. What makes, yeah. what makes you think that? And I said, I feel it. I just, I can sense it. You know, right. Jacob DeGrom made his major league debut that year, did it against the Yankees, pitched great, ended up going on and winning rookie of the year. Zach Wheeler made all 32 starts, was really solid. Even John Neese was a guy I was feeling really good about. Henry yeah. Mejia looked like he could be a legitimate arm out of the bullpen. Jairus Familia had a pretty good arm that year out of the bullpen. Yeah. Josh Edgen looked great. Yeah. And... You know, you looked at Duda, who was pretty productive, and you looked at Murphy, and I thought they still had something left out of David Wright, even though he didn't have a great year. Right. And I liked Juan Lagares at the time, and Curtis Granderson is now on this team. I, I just, I, and Matt Harvey's coming back. You know, that was the other thing. Matt Harvey's coming back next year. So 2014 felt like a really big year towards the future. Syndergaard's coming. Harvey's coming back. Wow, this Jacob DeGrom guy is pretty good because, remember, he was not regarded as the top pitching prospect. They brought up him and Rafael Montero at the same time. Montero was going to be in the rotation. DeGrom was going to be in the bullpen. Right. And then because of injuries, DeGrom made his major league debut against the Yankees. Pitched great. What else is new? He got no run support, and yeah. the Mets lost. Yeah. So that was a sign of his entire career. But in a 79-win year in which they got off to a bad start, they were never in any kind of pennant race, I felt so good about where this team was going. And I thought about the pitching staff, and you, you sensed how it all was coming together. Now, there would be some turns before we got to 2015 that I didn't expect, like Zach Wheeler got hurt. Who saw that coming? Right. Noah Syndergaard eventually gets called up. Matt Harvey comes back, and he's, he's great. And we'll get to 2015. But 2014 for the Mets felt like, wow, we're finally going to get to see the return 
on the Sandy Alderson era. And it was still some bad, like having to watch Eric Campbell and having to watch Chris Young and having to watch Bobby Abreu, who was on that team at the time. <laughs> Josh Satin, Omar Quintanilla still around. <laughs> Eric sad. Young. Yeah. A lot of guys that were, you know, just tough to watch. Now, Met fans loved Cologne. Remember, they added Bartolo Cologne. Yep. And he was wildly popular with Met fans and was productive that year, went out through 200 innings. Yep. But you could sense, at least I did, that the worm was turning. And I, I, prophetically, it turned out to be true, but it, it was a season in which there was actually hope for the first time in a while. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember if I got the sense at the time that the worm was turning. Uh, I, I still, I mean, I, you obviously see DeGrom come up and, 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 and win the rookie of the year and pitch the way he pitched. Uh, Darno was still, you know, coming on, I guess, you know, so you, you on that trade and, and, um, I'm trying to think that that's the year they signed Curtis Granderson, right? So, yeah. Curtis Granderson was so on that team. I thought yeah. that, I thought that was a good signing from them. And, you know, like you said, they, they were better. I, I, and I, and I got a good feel for Terry Collins. I remember feeling like I started to really th- like Terry Collins as a manager. Uh, I liked his grittiness. I liked his toughness. And I thought, I guess the team I thought was a little bit better, but still, you know, I don't. I don't ever remember getting a positive feeling about that team so much. What happened with um, Ike Davis that year? It was over. I mean, it was. Clearly, it was already. It was, it was already over. Well, that was, was the year he went. He, I'm trying to think of what year we we found that out about Davis. Well, it, so because I knew it was the competition of Duda and Davis, and Duda had won it out. So by that Sandy year. Duda was had 30 home runs that year. Yeah, Ike Davis barely played that year. It became Lucas Duda's job, and yeah. that was very unpopular with a lot of people. We we liked Ike Davis. We yeah. saw more from Ike Davis, but Sandy Alderson really liked Lucas Duda, probably because of the walks, probably because of the OPS. So Duda became the everyday first baseman that year and ended right. up hitting 30 home runs and yeah. drove in 92 runs yeah. and an 830 OPS and was pound for pound They're their most productive. Player. Offensive yeah. player. So the Duda Davis debate really ended that season. And what also we didn't know at the time was a 31 year old David Wright was basically playing his final full season in the major leagues. Yeah. We didn't know that at the time because, and David was not great that year. It was his worst season productively that season. But at 31 years old, coming off an all star year the year before, yeah. I never thought it was over. He yeah. would end up playing, if you, if you take out 2018, which I do, because I yeah. don't count those two games. Yeah. He ends up playing 75 games the rest of his career in yeah. 2015 and 2016. Yeah. So, and, and was productive, by the way, when he played. Yeah. But 2014, without us knowing it at the time, turned out to be the last full year of David Wright. Right. But it was the, you know what it was? It was the pitching. That's where you felt things changing. Right. Nice was 27 and good. Wheeler had a really productive year. DeGrom won rookie of the year. Yep. And you knew Harvey's coming back and Syndergaard is coming. And when you right. add all that up and some hope out of the bullpen, you felt like, okay, things are finally moving in the right direction. And as we will find out in part two of our decade in review, yeah. things would start to turn around. The Yankees would have a token playoff appearance. Right. The Yankees would have a sell-off. And then the birth of yep. a new Yankee run would yeah. begin. I was going to say, you got to have me back for part two because now it gets fun. It <laughs> me gets too. Fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, the sell-off and the rebirth are probably the most interesting part of the last decade for me. Uh, just the way they, you know, change philosophy, yep. allow Cashman to do what he desperately wanted to do. Honestly, this would have happened in the in the years we're talking about. This would have happened if we we're up to Cashman. I firmly believe that. That I don't know if they had the. When you look at the team, I'm not sure they had the pieces to sell off. Right. That's how bad they were. But um, 
I do think that this would have been a, a process started earlier if Cashman had his druthers. So that the 2016 season, coming off the 15 season where they make the improbable, they actually have a great start and then lose it to the Blue Jays as you go down the stretch. But to have that season, play in that wild card game, and then have 16, the emergence of uh, the young catcher and the trade-off building towards 17 is as fascinating as it gets this decade for the New York Yankees. So I'm looking forward to part two. Well, and I'm also looking forward to part two because it's going to be the only time yes. we get to discuss a World Series appearance yep. by a New York baseball team. Yep. And Come obviously, <laughs> it ain't the Yankees. That is true. That we'll is, get that, to that. That's unfortunately true. We'll like, get to a that. Whole de- a whole decade without a World Series I know. Appearance. What a failure. But thank you for joining me for part one of the Mets-Yankees Decade in Review, Chris McMonigle. Oh, no problem. We'll be back for part two where things are about to get interesting.